name is Richard Chastler. I know I look Italian. I'm not. I'm half Jewish and half French, which means what I don't buy wholesale, I design myself. <laughs> Thank you very much. I'm a New Yorker originally. How many New Yorkers do we have here? <laughs> All right, three of us. We could take them, right? Where are you from? Yonkers. Yonkers, nice. You? Westchester. Westchester. That's like pussy New York. <laughs> That's like, I'm from LA. Where? Riverside. <laughs> it's kind of like locale New York, diet New York you're from. I'm from Brooklyn, New York. I'm from the city where people talk like pigeons. We do, we can't help it, guys from Brooklyn. We talk our neck moves like we're pecking bread off a bench in Central Park. It just sorta happens, it's just. And we hurt ourselves when we talk. Yo, Joey. Yo, Vinny, yo, Tani. Yo, Bob. And get no, and get no response until we get really low, right? Hey, yo, Vinny. What is it, a snorkel? How does that work? You touch here, you sniff here. How does that happen? I, I, I was stoned in biology. I never got to that chapter. There's drug addicts running around Harlem going. Come on, let's all make that noise. Give it up for Richard Chastler, everybody. Wow. <clears throat> wow. What's the vintage on that bottle? <laughs> I don't know, but we were at the Ice House in uh, Pasadena. I love that place. Yeah, it's a great place. I love that place. Crushing it over there. Could be one of my favorite comedy clubs in town. Yeah? Seriously. Don't you love that room? I do not. It's like a down blanket. The problem with the Ice House is it really is not a good barometer right. to tell you if you're good or right. funny. Right. You know, the audiences are so generous. Right. You know, the perfect uh, ego stroke. It's the perfect <laughs> ego stroke. It is. You know, but coming back from the road and then going to the ice house after you've been working and then you get that, it's just kind of like the cherry on top of everything that was already amazing. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I love that place. Supposedly it's uh, one of the oldest or the oldest uh, comedy, uh, stand-up comedy clubs in, in the, the country. country. Yeah. Yeah, it is. Yeah. It's amazing. Yeah. yeah. You go in there and you see uh, pictures of, uh, you see like David Letterman and Fucking, I saw one of uh, George Miller. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. Yeah, dude, all those guys, man. Leno, everyone started at the Ice House. Yeah. I did my first show at the Ice House. I'm not kidding you. February 3rd. I started February 86. I think I did my first Dave McNary show there probably May or June of 86. You know? Wow. That's when I think I did my first set at the Ice House. Wow. Yeah. So you started out here in California? Yeah. Old Laugh Factory. Oh, yeah. And the stage was directly opposite the front door, okay. facing the door. Okay. So the room played long way. So when you walked in the front, I could show you, there's literally remnants of the old stage at the Laugh Factory. Yeah. When you are in the new, where, in the club. Oh, you wow. You can see where it used to be. Like, I could show you where it was, and the actual floor sticks up a little bit like that. Wow. Yeah. And it's, it, it faced out towards Sunset Boulevard. That is amazing. Yeah, that's yeah. where I started in eighty February of eighty six. Oh wow, nice man. <laughs> and uh, did did you just start going to open mics, or did you take a class, or what'd you do? I um, I was an actor, and I was on a soap opera. Oh okay. And uh, 
I had gotten fired from that soap opera uh-huh. um, and got a job at Paramount Studios as a guard. Uh-huh. And my first job was guarding the dressing rooms on a TV show called Family Ties. Wow. Met Mark Price. Yeah. Mark and I became friends. Mark played Skippy on Family yeah. Ties. You, you know Mark, yeah. right? Yeah. So Mark was like, oh my God, Richie, you're so funny. You should do stand-up comedy. I go, no, I'm an actor. I study with Stella Adler. I do Shakespeare in the park. I am not a jester. I'm not a comedian yeah. to be laughed and squawked at. And three weeks later, I was on stage doing my first five minutes at the Laugh Factory Tuesday night uh, open mic, I guess it was. Mark got me on, and uh, I was hooked. Wow. Ab- immediate response, like being in the theater. Incredible. And like, you know, I mean, I sucked for the first two years, but I killed my first time like everybody. Yeah. Right? Yeah. You killed your first time on stage. Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> and then ate it for a year after yeah, that. Yeah. yeah. It's pretty bad. <laughs> it's a weird thing. You tell people like, oh, everybody kills the first time they go on. And I don't know if it's because the adrenaline is running higher. You've got friends in the audience. Like, I'm not really sure. Both of those. What that is. Both of those are true. you got tons of... Energy and and uh, you know you're bulletproof and right. uh, you know maybe maybe uh, it isn't as good as you think but you're just on this high and it's so crazy dude right yeah it's I know like nothing you've ever had before yeah I mean that's a powerful drug man they say cocaine's a hell of a drug <sighs> it doesn't hold a candle to this uh, you know well I did both in the eighties uh, and I will tell you <coughs> comedy is a much better high yeah yeah <laughs> yeah cleaner <laughs> yeah it's definitely um yeah it's it's uh yeah it, it doesn't it doesn't hurt your nostrils <laughs> your pockets wind up with more money not less yeah and when you wake up in the morning you don't want to kill yourself <laughs> sometimes you know yeah unless yeah. of course you roll over and you're with that waitress nobody wanted to be with. <laughs> you're like oh what did i do i know dude so that's crazy man so you've been doing it ever since mm-hmm. wow yeah this February, I celebrate my 35th anniversary, believe it or not, Eric. Wow, congratulations, dude. Yeah, and I've known you 12 years now. Yeah, at least. Yeah. So wait, tell me about, like, how do you go from being on a soap opera to working at, at the gate at the Paramount? This is so funny. I used to have an act, before I got to Stella Adler, I was studying acting with this acting teacher named Jerry Gordon in Van Nuys. And there was a kid in my class who was from, like, the town next to mine on Long Island. And we met in this class, and we became instant friends. Well, he was a real handsome kid also, and he somehow met these people that were associated with Marvin Davis, who owned 20th Century Fox at the time. Nice. And they gave him a job working as a guard. And he was working at this studio part-time, this studio just filling in. And then he wound up living with this man who was a security guard at Paramount who took in wayward actors. And it was nothing sexual. It wasn't weird. This guy's name was John Wells, and he was just this older dude who helped people get back on their feet. Wow. And so Mike introduced me to John, and John was like, you should get a job at Paramount. And he told me what to say. What lies to tell <laughs> to get hired? And that's exactly what I did. I knew I wanted to act, so what better job for me than to be riding a bike around Paramount Studios? Oh, yeah, absolutely. That place is magical. Huh? Dude, I was 20. 
Yeah. I was 20. I looked like, oh. you know, Scott Bayo. I yeah. had big, thick, long hair. They made me cut it, you know, and I was in a uniform riding a bike around Paramount Studios. I, I It was crazy. Yeah, that is crazy, man. Yeah. I mean, The Godfather was uh, from Paramount, right? I used to yeah. go into the, like, the set lockers, and I became friends with the guy who ran the film vault, and we would sit and get high, and he would roll outtakes of wow, The Godfather dude. for me. Yeah, Jeez. in the film vault, he would pull film out and roll outtakes for me. That's amazing. Oh, yeah. Dude, I was at uh, Paramount maybe like four months ago, and that place looks like it hasn't uh, been remodeled since Good. it was like, yeah. It's, Good. Yeah, I mean, it, it looks, it's got that old feel to it, and uh, it's just, it, yeah, man, it just, it smells and looks like old Hollywood. It is old Hollywood. Yeah. It's haunted like all the other, like all the studios, wow. you know, yeah. Yeah. But it's uh, it's a special place to me. I worked there for two years. In fact, you asked about doing open mics. When I started doing stand-up, there were only like 20 open micers in L.A. Yeah. Literally. Really? Yeah, there was just a handful of us, and we would show up at the Laugh Factory on Tuesday nights, the Comedy Store on Monday nights. We all knew each other. Mm -hmm. We all got on. Yeah. There was only literally like 15 or 20 of us. There weren't a lot of comedians back then. So we all knew each other. Then there were not open mics like there are at like these bars and this and that. and everything. It wasn't like that. There was an open mic at the Laugh Factory Tuesday night, an open mic at the Comedy Store in the Belly Room on Monday night. There was a place called the Natural Fudge Company on Western and Fountain, which was an old folk place wow. that they would do comedy at Wednesdays and Thursdays. And you could go there, sign up and get on. And yeah. everyone, Schubert and I, and we'd all drive over there and we'd just go do the Fudge Company. Then we'd come back and watch Sam in the main room at the comedy store at like 10, 30, 11 o'clock. Jesus. Yeah, it was insane. But that's what there was. You just, there were none of these like open mics everywhere once you had 15 minutes you went and did gigs like within two hours of paid LA. gigs huh? 50 bucks yeah you you're the host slash mc yeah and that's where you learn how to actually host a show and not go up and do material you know you that's where you cut your teeth and yeah then, then you meet guys who are in town headlining and then they give you names of bookers and then you're on the phone calling and they go send me a tape and you freaking send a VHS tape, and then you're on the road meeting other people, and that's how it worked. Yeah, wow. Yeah. There was no internet. Yeah. Dude, and, like, how, 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 what kind of people did you see coming through Paramount over there? Did you see, like, a bunch of celebrities like I all was, the time? Yeah, I mean, I was friends with Michael J. Fox. Like, uh -huh. we hung out. If Michael walked in here right now, he'd look at me, hey, what are you doing here? You know, like, yeah. Yeah. That's how I met Mark Price, and I became friends with Webster. Wow. Yeah, Manny Lewis was a great guy, and I mm -hmm. used to, when I would go walk through the stage where they shot that, I would sneak into Alex Karras' dressing room and pinch his weed, <laughs> and I'd roll joints with Alex Karras' weed. Wow. Yeah. It's crazy. Crazy, dude. but yeah, I, like, I met Matthew Broderick when they were shooting Ferris Bueller's, and, yeah. know, and then I would run into him periodically when I was living in New York. I saw him at a deli one day, and he was looking at me like, how do I, like, yeah. like he recognized, but didn't know from where. Yeah. And I was like, oh, about 20-some-odd years ago, I was a guard at Paramount, and you were on Ferris. He goes, oh, I remember you. You were the guard who had to drive the Ferrari. I go, yeah, I'm the guy who had to move the car so you could move your car. Nice. <laughs> you know, it's just. Yeah. Yeah. Wow, that's great, dude. And uh, what would you learn from working over there? Because, I mean, you're, you're, you're immersed in uh, the business and Hollywood people and uh, 
you know, so, I mean, did you learn how to act, how to be around them, how to not be intimidated by them? Like, what kind of things did you pick up from, uh, from working there? Well, I think the most important thing, the first thing that comes to mind that sticks out is that I learned that the guards have a very overinflated sense of self-importance. <laughs> that studio security guards believe if it wasn't for them, <laughs> no. people would have, oh yeah, people would have no place to make movies. <laughs> that, and, they, and they steal. So those are the two things that I really learned out of the gate. Oh. Is that the guard? Who guards the guards? Oh, yeah. yeah. I was like the one good cop in a bad city. It was pretty funny. Um, uh. No, I learned a lot because what I did was, to be honest with you, like my first jobs were basically doing what's called set watch. Yeah. So I would be hired to part time to work on like shoot night on Cheers yeah. or shoot night on Family Ties. Mm -hmm. And I would have to like sit in the dressing rooms during the shoots and make sure nobody walked into anybody's dressing room because the dressing rooms are open and there's a hallway. There, really? You know. Yeah. Wow. And people are running back and forth during scenes while they're shooting, you know, yeah. and uh, I saw Shelley Long and Meredith Baxter Bernie both in their underwear. Thank you. <laughs> um, but so that was my first job. And what I realized was, is that I was literally getting a free class watching James Burroughs. Yeah. Direct cheers. So the nights I oh. wasn't working, I would go. Yeah. And I would s just sit in the back of the soundstage and I would watch Jimmy Burroughs direct. And I Amazing. learned how to be on a set and work on a set and understand language and terminology and comedy timing yeah. in front of a camera, which is different than comedy timing sure. on a stage. Yeah. And, you know, I'm watching James Burroughs, the guy who, you know, directed the taxi. I mean, like, this guy's been around forever. He was part of Charles. That's Charles Burroughs Charles. Yeah. You know, I mean, that's, they made Cheers. Wow. And he directed every episode. Yeah. You know, and yeah. I watched for two years. I watched Asad Kaleda directing Family Ties. And, you know, it's just, I, I, I worked on Star Trek Four. Wow. I watched him shoot all that whale stuff in the pit. And so I watched Shatner working and Nimoy working and you get to watch them direct. Leonard Nimoy was directing and, you know, I was friends with his secretary yeah. from being on the lot. So she set it up that Leonard would like have me on the set. Yeah. And I would just be sitting next to Leonard while he was working. Like I was a 21 year old kid, you know, I mean, I didn't want to say, hey, can I be in the movie? <laughs> <laughs> but they were super nice people. And yeah. just sat there and watched and shut up yeah yeah that's great dude i mean you know people you know get on waiting lists to be an intern at these places so they could just learn you know what you saw every day right you know getting paid to do it's and true i think a lot of people don't uh or they underestimate uh um just being there and observing you know as far as like learning things, you know what I mean? You've learned so many things just being there, you know, you hear stories all the time about like, you know, Oh, I got hired on this movie and they fired me day two, you know, because there's something called set etiquette. Yeah. You work on sets, Eric. Yeah. I mean, you work on sets. Yeah. That's how you make your money. So, you know, I'm kind of a big deal. You're kind of a big deal. You know, I mean, you're getting your star on the walk pretty soon. I think. <laughs> But uh, you work on set, so you're there, yeah. you know. Sure. I mean, I got fired from my first professional acting job because Really? I, yes. Your first one? Oh, yes. my gosh. I got hired on Santa Barbara um, to come in and do one day, yeah. one line. No nothing, sorry. Yeah. That was the line. 
Wow. And it turned into they liked me and I was nice and whatever. So I got a few more days work. Yeah. Okay. So I had no management. I was 19, maybe just turned 20. I had been studying acting with this guy who was attracted to me and was kind of managing me, but not really. And mm-hmm. it was a weird thing. You know what I mean? So my roommate's friend got, uh, was the casting director for Santa Barbara, hired me on Christmas Eve to come in like January 3rd. Yeah. First day back to do this thing, right? Yeah. So I do it. It's very cool. They asked me to come back a couple more times because the role was the friend of the lead kid, right? Yeah. Who had disappeared. So I'm with Rory Calhoun and Robin Wright before she married Sean Penn. Yeah. Wow. You know, there are all these actors, right? So I'm watching them all. And on a soap opera... The director is not on the stage. Mm-hmm. Like when you're shooting a sitcom or you're shooting a drama, the director's right there. They're up He's, in a booth. Right. You know? Yeah. So you don't you can't see the director. You talk to him through the camera. Right. Well, we shot a scene and I I don't know. I I didn't love it, but who the fuck am I? <laughs> so I look dead into the camera and I'm like, hey, uh, Phil. I wasn't really feeling that. Do you think maybe we can go back? I can give you something better. I'm a day player. Yeah. Right. Jesus. Total day player. <laughs> like, who am I? But yeah. I saw everybody else doing yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. You know and what you're I on mean? a first name I, basis with this guy, right? No, I don't know who he was, but I right, thought he right. was the director, whatever his name was. Right. But I just thought, like, all right, everyone else is asking for retakes. Yeah. All right, they fill. Right. You know, like, Fired. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Jesus. I didn't know. Yeah, you yeah. Know, day players, shut up, go work mm, and leave. You right. don't ask for retakes. You're yeah. not in that position to yeah. say to the director, yeah. I can give you something better. Right. If they ask you, that's right. one thing. Yeah. But I was, like I said, I think I had just turned, like, just turned 20, maybe. I was like, looked right into the camera when the guy says, cut in the bell right. And I was just like, like, I was Rory Calhoun or something. Yeah, yeah. That's hilarious. (laughs) Yeah, dude, working in, you know, I've worked on uh, General Hospital, and, uh, you know, they they do one or two takes, and and they move on. Yeah, That's it. So I could imagine what they were thinking when you're like, yeah, let's uh, hold up production and do this one yeah. more time. Because <laughs> they're like, who are you? Exactly. <laughs> you know I, mean? I don't yeah. even think the guy knew who I was. Yeah, you know? yeah. I mean, you're like that guy who shows up. You got less than five lines. Yeah. You know, I was right. lucky to get a few more days sure. of work out of one day, one line. Yeah. And I'm like, hey, exactly. Well, you're going to cost us money? Yeah. Oh, no. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, no. Yeah. That's so funny. And that's what it's all about, man. People yeah. don't realize the business part of show business. It really you know is I mean? a freaking business. Yeah. And we're idiots for even thinking that it's a viable way to make a living. Yeah. Like, what do you think? You're an artist. You right. might as well paint paintings like Van Gogh. Cut your ear off. I know. I know. It's brutal, dude. Like, like, like we don't know any anything about the business. We're so wrapped up in the show, dude, <laughs> and the art, you know? I know. And, uh, and that's what hurts us. But, like, we can't do anything about it. That's who we are. It's it's very difficult to... They always say, you know, like, oh, you're your best agent. Yeah. You know what I mean? You're yeah. your best publicist. Uh-huh. But, like, where do we get those skills from? Yeah. Do we steal them from people like I did? Hey, Phil, you think we can get it? You know what I mean? Yeah, what yeah. What do you do? How do you know how to do that stuff? I'm a freaking actor. I've been acting since first grade. Wow. I slept in my car. So I could pay Stella Adler money to train me because I couldn't afford her and an apartment. Wow. So I lived on the street for a year. 
Jesus. So that I could train with Stella. Uh-huh. Yeah. Wow. Uh, wh- wh- on Santa Monica? No, this is when she had had the studio on Argyle Street and Hollywood Boulevard. Now on that site is the metro station. Oh, okay. But where the metro station is right there at Hollywood Boulevard and Argyle is where the Stella Adler Conservatory was. Okay. And then we built a theater next door to it. All the students, we chipped in. And this is like 1983, 84, 85, 86, you know. Wow. Yeah, and I was training there. And the first year I lived in my car, my, you know. Yeah. Jesus. Yeah. Yeah, um, and that that must have been intense, right? Because that's method acting? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So that's the real method, though. Yeah. It's like Stella was the one who went and studied with Stanislavski, uh-huh. you know? Yeah. And came back and said, okay, let's do this, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then she started uh, teaching in New York, right? So Stella and Lee Strasberg uh-huh. started the group theater in New York City. Uh-huh. And everyone was studying there from Ilya Kazan and Brando. Yeah. And everyone was there. Yeah. And in 1946, and they were teaching the method out of Stanislavski's books. Wow. An actor prepares, yeah. creating a role. Those books that Stanislavski wrote, yeah. they read them and they said, we're going to teach this. Okay? Yeah. In 46, after World War II, mm-hmm. and Stanislavski and the Russian Moscow Arts Theater were yeah. expelled from Moscow and wound up in France, yeah. Stella went to Paris in 46 to study with Stanislavski. Okay. Wow. Three years she spent in Paris, came back in 49, came back to the group theater and says to Lee Strasberg, we're doing it wrong. Really? Yeah. (laughs) And Lee went, what are you saying? And she said, we're doing it backwards. It's not from the outside, from the inside out. It's from the outside in because life is from the outside in. And Lee went, well, I'm not changing my approach. This is what I interpret from the books. And Stella goes, but I'm telling you what he said. And Lee went, well, I'm not changing. And that's when the group theater split. Uh. And some people stayed with Stella Adler and some people stayed with Lee Strasberg. Mm. And that's why when people talk about the method and they go, oh, are you Strasberg or Adler? Mm-hmm. That's where those two schools oh. of thought come from. Wow. Lee Strasberg believes that your work comes from inside out. Yeah. That, um, you know... E- Created if it isn't real, all right? Um, that if you're supposed to cry in a scene and you're not there, go back into a time when your dog died and use that emotion to bring the tears up in the scene. Mm-hmm. Stella says that's fucking lying and it's not being present in the moment and it's not a genuine reaction to what's going on. Uh-huh. If you're supposed to cry and you can't cry, don't cry. Really? Yeah, but don't leave the scene. Uh-huh. And your character and the presence of the character in the scene to go back into your own personal experiences mm. yeah. to create something so your character then can have some physical manifestation of an experience yeah. for the audience? Right. That's not art. Mm. And Stella was like, it's about truth. And Strasberg is like, I mean, Stanislavski was like, it's all about the truth. And that was the split and the two schools of thought about method acting. I'm a non, you know me, mm-hmm. you know me. Yeah. I don't like bullshit. Yeah. So Stella's um, approach w- sat much better for me. It was like a down comforter where Strasberg's approach to me, I found disingenuous and like it wasn't, r- I, I didn't ever feel like I was when I was studying there um, and I studied with Strasberg for a year. I'd never felt like I was being genuine. Mm. I always felt like I was forcing something like a round peg in a square hole. Mm. But when I got to Stella, she was like, no, you have to tell the truth. 
And it was so much easier for me to have real experiences on stage because of that. I like that. Yeah. 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 I, 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 Sorry yeah. we're not being very funny right now, folks, but stick around. The comedy's coming. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, it's interesting, you know, for, you know, anyone that, you know, wonders about what it takes to uh, get there in the scene, yeah. you know, and, and where do you draw from, you know, and uh, where do you get this from? And uh, that's really interesting because I didn't know the difference between those two and, uh, yeah, I'm seeing, you know, just from what you said, I, I could see myself being more of a Stella guy than uh, the other guy. Well, what you just said, that language is so beautiful. I love that language, getting there in the scene. You know, how do you get there in the scene? Right. You know? Yeah. And it really is a combination of a couple things, and one of them is doing your homework mm -hmm. for your character, so you know what your character is, who are they, what's their history, how do they react to things in life, and why do they react that way? Yeah. So you're having an honest experience. Then it's listening. Acting is listening. Yeah. So you're listening in character, and you're present in the scene. So when the guy says something, and you're in character, and you're listening, and you're portraying that character, your character's response is very, very real. Because it's coming from a place where you're listening in a real place. Right. You're yeah. not thinking about, how can I make this look a certain way? Right. Yeah. You know what I mean? Uh -huh. And that, to me, is like this gyroscope, like this gyration that just sort of pushes the whole thing forward. You know, when, it, when it's working, it's like you can feel the energy running through the room. Like at a dead show, when it's working, you can feel that it's almost tangible, that electricity. And it's the same thing on stage, you know, when you're acting or in front of a camera when you're acting and it's working right. You could hear a pin drop. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I you get. Know? Yeah, it's beautiful art. It is beautiful. It's beautiful art. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I remember uh, being in an acting class and uh, you know seeing some, you know, a couple doing a you know a, a, a scene together, and it's just they're that I'm feeling that energy you were just talking about because they were present and uh, they were just really into it, and that energy is like really. It's like it, it's pretty powerful. It's like really, really. Uh, it's, I don't know. It's just you know. It could. And by the way, there's a third unspoken ingredient that What's you can't that? teach in class. It's not in any book. What is it? Occasionally, you have chemistry with the person. Mm. You know, you just like when you meet a girl or you meet a guy, and you're like, dude, we're gonna be friends for a long time. You just know you have chemistry yeah, with the person, yeah. right? Well, it's the same thing when you're working. Okay. As an actor, and sometimes you'll do a scene with a woman, and you just have you just have this chemistry. Yeah, you know, like Drew Barrymore and Adam Sandler have great chemistry. Yeah, you know, when you watch them in there, and that's why they do several movies together because right. it works. Yeah, you know, it's just it's very easy to watch. They're sure. Not, you, you you ever watch two actors together and you kind of like you can tell like they are not at all yeah relating and you yeah. know then you're reading People magazine two you know twenty actors who hated their co-stars yeah. and you go oh yeah totally you could tell yeah you know totally. even in the kissing scene yeah you yeah you just like it's almost like a forced kiss instead of like they melt into each other yeah you know what I mean and sometimes you just that chemistry is just there and you're lucky to work with an actor or actress that has it. And it just takes the, it's like that third eye, that, that other thing that adds to that experience that makes getting there even easier because there's like that understanding of each other on a humanity level. Mm -hmm. 
because of that chemistry. Yeah. It's weird. So it is weird. weird. That is so weird. That just made me think, though. Is there? Do you think that there's any chemistry between the stand-up comedian and the audience? Hundred percent. Right. Every <laughs> night on stage. See, you know me. I'm a big Grateful Dead fan. Yeah. Right. And I work very free form in my stand-up. And every night on stage is different. At least for me. Some comics go out. They do the same act. Yeah. It's the same thing. They do the hour, the forty-five, whatever. Thank you. Good night. And they walk off. And I don't even know how they, those guys have fun on stage when they keep the fourth wall up and yeah. they're just doing the show and it's yeah. all written and they're done and thank you and get yeah. you know what I mean? With no push and pull and interaction. Okay, whoa, 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 wait a minute. What did you just, hold on. I just saw you lean over and right. say something to him. Yeah, yeah. I want, can we bring the lights up a little bit? What is going on at this yeah. table right now? Like, yeah. you know, that to me is being alive in, Absolutely. in the moment. And yeah. That's where my best comedy comes from. Yeah. You know, so I think there's chemistry absolutely between the audience. I mean, I did a show one night in um, in uh, um, Tennessee that I didn't want to do, and I told the booker this is not a good idea. It was in Chattanooga. First night was great. Second night, there was Christian Coalition in the room, and I'm not politically correct, and I couldn't figure out what was going on in the room, and I had to find. And it turns out there was a table of thirty Christian Coalition, and everybody else in the room knew them, and were afraid to laugh. Huh. Uh, so the chemistry in the room sucked, uh, and I wound up walking a hundred people. Uh, <laughs> fuck yeah, get the fuck out! Uh, I said, "What's I tell? What's wrong?" Well, you're being a little dirty, and there's children at the table. Well, this is an over twenty-one show. What kind of kids are at the table? And there was a son and a daughter, and the, I said to the son, "Have you ever heard anything? Not heard what I'm." So he goes, he didn't want to answer in front of his dad that he'd heard curse words before, mm, you know? Yeah. And then I looked at the daughter. I go, how old are you? She goes, 17. And I go, well, you've been finger banged, right? Oh, no. <laughs> at which point, you know, that was sort of ended the search for chemistry. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and they walked out, 30 of them, and then another tables, tables, table. I walked 100 people. Wow. Yeah, but I didn't care because the last 35 minutes were a hell of a lot more enjoyable than the, thirst, oh, than the first yeah. 25 minutes. Yeah, yeah. Totally. So, yeah, I think that that chemistry thing between the audience is, and you can create it. You can love the audience and you can bring them in if they're having a shit night, you know, before you ever touch your material. You know, you can walk on stage and go, I know there's something weird in this room right now. You have the absolute freedom as a comedian. Yeah. To fix the chemistry in the room. Yeah. To get people on the same page. Yeah. If you're seasoned and know how to run the room, you can do that. Yeah. But I believe absolutely. Tell me about it. And I've seen it happen. I've seen you do it. Uh, you know, at the scene in North Hollywood. <laughs> you know, talking about a little dive bar, right? Where like hell is breaking loose yeah. right before you get up. You know what I mean? And it, I love that place. Right? I mean, but you know, like... You're seeing the destruction and, and, and all this, and you're like, well, I'm next. I'm, I'm, I'm next. And, and then when you get up there, I mean, you're not going to let what you just saw, uh, you know, affect what your performance or who, who, what you're going to do up there. And, I, you know, like, you know how some people, they, they, they're already defeated before they get on stage, dude. Right. And I've seen people who are like, right. I can't, you know, no. You know, and, I, and I've seen, you know, hell on stage and then I've seen you go up there and then crush it. Dude. Thank you. you. Know? Yeah, I appreciate that. So I mean, so you didn't you didn't allow what the you know the the three other comedians before you 
uh, you know, dictate, you know, your outcome. You know, like, well, I care about the crowd. I'm there. My job is not to make the crowd laugh. My crowd is not to get laughs. Those are two very selfish positions to take on a stage, I believe. First of all, I'm always high. (laughs) High. Um, (laughs) So to make an audience of 600 or 60 have to do something. To me is far too much responsibility. I can't go on stage with a head right. that heavy. Like, I got to make these people do something. Right. So that's, um, I know it's semantics, but I can't look at it that way. And the getting laughs part to me is so selfish. Like, oh, I'm going to get laughs. Get, right. I'm get. They it paid is. to get in. Yeah. They should be getting something. Yeah. So my philosophy is I go on stage to give right. laughs. And yes. if you read my tweets and stuff, yeah. that, going on stage to give laughs, that's how I language it. I love that, it. dude. And it I changes love it. everything yes. for me. So when I see three guys tanking the fucking scene, yeah. knowing that it's a biker bar almost as it is, yeah. my job is still to go give them laughs. Right. Not get, not make. Nice. So I approach it with a little bit more love, I think, than the average person. And I think, I think that's a little bit, because even the biggest dick in the room, I'll look at him and go, you're not shaking me. I'm going to love you from this stage. And you've heard me say that to people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know what I mean? Like, no matter what you say, I'm going to be your friend. Yeah. And that's the big test with audiences. That's when the girl calls the cops, right? (laughs) (laughs) No, 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 not you, your mom. (laughs) But yeah, it's... um, you gotta love. You got to love the audience. Yeah. You can't be afraid of them, and you got to listen to the whoever went on before you. Got to listen, pay attention because you can address those problems when you get on stage. You have a point of reference from which to work. You know, when you get on stage, you can go, "Okay, Bob." You know, the guy yeah. in the audience. Yeah. You know, so good you wouldn't Bob. right. So good old Bob, you can get that out of Bob in sixty seconds. What the other guy couldn't deal with. Right. And then you now bought the crowd. Yeah. Well, I think that comedian couldn't deal with himself. Exactly. And, you know, it's like that's what he was. And then you go up there, you know, you deal with yourself every day, every second of the, you know. I mean, so, I mean, you just went up there and as Richard and you you did exactly what you just said, you know. Um, so. You yeah, loved him. Yeah. I loved him. And yeah. you know what? I, I got to be honest with you, you know. <laughs> It's hard. Mm. I mean, comedy. Of course. Look, we've talked about acting. Yeah. You know, I've, I've also been playing drums since I'm seven and toured with two different uh, Grateful Dead tribute bands and sold a thousand tickets a show. Cool. I do theater. I tap dance. You know, I taught myself to play guitar and piano. So, like, I, I can tell you that out of all of the art forms that unfortunately I'm cursed with being able to do. Stand-up comedy is by far the single hardest one to master. It takes the longest. It has the most moving parts. Yeah. And it requires the greatest amount of um, intellectual understanding of the art form. It's three art forms rolled into one. It's writing. You got to be a great writer. Yeah. Okay. Then you got to be a great comedy performer. Yeah. And you have to be a great director mm-hmm. to know how to stage the act. So to be a really good stand-up. It takes so long, and it's that seasoning, I think, that makes it possible for you to, you know, to finally understand, like, it doesn't matter what's going on in the room. Like, I've got enough flying hours. Yeah. You know right. what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah. That, totally. like, I have, I'll pull this plane out of the nosedive. Yeah. You know? Yeah, yeah. No, that's great, dude. I mean, I, I'm a firm believer in, you know. You saw me tank one night. Yeah. You saw me eat it big time on the freaking Latin show, the uh, 
what do you call refried Fridays, <laughs> dude? They threw me up as the guinea pig <laughs> to open. The, I was the first guy on that night. Do you remember this? <laughs> yeah. And, and I ate. She, Rita came up to me. She's like, "Do you mind taking the bullet?" I'm yeah. like, "You're gonna put a white guy up on a yeah. Latin show first? Yeah. It's not a bullet. This is a yeah. bazooka." Well, dude, I mean, even even without it being, um, I think the the Hollywood Improv is is one of the tougher clubs, don't you think? It used to be extreme. Well, yes. Um, to get started in the improv, there's a stiffness to that room. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like we were saying the ice house is like a down comforter. Yeah. It's just, <sighs> the improv is like, ah! <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, I don't know if it's the stigma that's around it. I don't know if it's the history of the building. I don't know what it is, but even when I started going on stage at the improv, it was a different stage. It was higher up. Do you remember before they remodeled the room, the old stairs you got on and the stage was higher. So you were towering over the audience and it was a little intimidating if you weren't seasoned and you didn't have a real handle on the art form. So for me, my first two auditions at the improv were disastrous. It took me till 1992 to finally get passed. Wow, 1992? Yeah, that's when Bud finally passed me. My first two, I wasn't ready and I was nervous and the improv has that stigma. And the room doesn't give. It's like a bad cushion on a pool table, you know? The room just has no give. You either do the job or you don't and there's no gratuitous laughter coming at you on that one. It's a hard room, you know? And I love that room, by the way, now. I do. That's where my um. That's the room where I, where my comedy, finally gelled. Like, the night where I all of a sudden realized, like, oh, I own it finally, was at the improv one night. Yeah, it happened, and that's why I don't take the mic out of the stand anymore. It was all the same set, and it all just happened. And uh, yeah, but that's a hard room, man. Damn. It is. And then people, like, you try to tell them that, like, I've been doing comedy two years. What do you mean? It's a hard room. And then they go up and they eat it. (laughs) And you look at them and you're like, I told you, man, you're not, you know. There's just certain things. But the internet has fucked it all up. And these young, aspiring comedians, as I call them, because they're not comedians yet, you know, they have this um, unrealistic expectation. Yeah of how the art form works and how quickly it takes to get funny and um <laughs> they have no patience either no dude no patience <laughs> yeah yeah they think it's a sprint and, and you know what else they don't like writing yeah they it, don't joke structure yeah is like what yeah I had a guy literally look at me and say, well, I just go on stage and I riff until I find the joke, you know, kind of like Hedberg. And I looked at him and I go, well, uh, Mitch Hedberg was my best friend. Uh And I toured on the road with Mitch Hedberg for five years. And all Mitch and I did was write. So when it looked like Mitch was riffing. Uh, Yeah. Okay. There were the times on stage where Mitch was hammered. Yeah. And he would go off page. But when it came to jokes and joke structure, we would work on words because the syllable through the rhythm of the joke off. So I need this same word, but in two syllables, not three. Hmm. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. Because the beat of the joke. And yeah. you tell that to these kids these days, they're like, come on, old man. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. I'm like, all right, old man. What was your favorite uh, Mitch Hedberg uh, joke? 
My favorite Mitch Hedberg joke. Um, I think one of them might be... Try not to get into an argument when you go camping with your girlfriend because it's hard to storm out of the tent and slam the flap. What? <laughs> Never heard that one. I like that joke. I like... Um, like, why are dogs always in the push-up position? Why are dogs like, always in the push-up It's just position? like a sl- simple, you know... I think fettuccine um, Alfredo is just macaroni and cheese for grown-ups. <laughs> <laughs> that's great. That's a great joke, yeah. you know? Yeah. I mean, we, we've we written so much together. It's so insane. And he wouldn't do anybody else's jokes, Mitch. Like, we were working one, uh, two weeks, actually, down in Grand Cayman. Uh-huh. And I showed up a day after him. And I was writing on the plane. And when I got there, I had written a joke that I wanted to do. Yeah. But it didn't really have my cadence, Okay. And I said, I'll tell you the joke after the story. And I said to Mitch, after, you know, when we got back to the condo after the first show, I was like, um, dude, I got a joke that I think is perfect for you. And I really, really want to give it to you. And he goes, man, Chastler, you know I'm not going to do that. I go, Mitch, I'm telling you, this is a very you joke. And you can take it and spin it or do whatever you want. He goes, man, I'll tell you what. You do the joke tomorrow night on stage. If that joke gets a laugh, then I will not do the joke. But if the joke does not get a laugh, I will take the joke and I will do the joke. Nice. So I went on stage and I did the joke and it ate shit. It fucking laid there. No matter, and I gave, I thought, I, and I worked it in at a point where I just could do the joke. And it's fucking out of the blue, jokey joke that uh, I couldn't sell. Uh, so Mitch, I gave it to Mitch. Mitch did it the next night. And of course, in Mitch perfect fashion, the joke kills. The joke is very simple. If you ever get caught Going through an airport with LSD, LSD in your briefcase, uh-huh. you can just tell them you're going on a business trip. <laughs> oh, hell no. <laughs> <laughs> well, I couldn't sell that joke, but Mitch could. It's a perfect one-liner for yeah. Mitch. He just laid it out. Boom. Hey. And the joke freaking killed. Yeah. So Mitch did the joke every night we were in Grand Cayman. Last night, we were in Grand Cayman. Mitch hands me a piece of paper, and he goes, here, man, this is for you. And I'm like, what? He goes, open it. And I opened it, and the, he had written the joke down on it. And I go, what's this? He goes, I'm giving you back your joke. I'm done with it. Oh, wow. I go, what? He goes, I told you I would do it, but I'm not keeping it. Mitch, wow. you couldn't do that. Mitch r- had to write his own wow, material. Wow, that's great. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah, he was, so that's the thing. When I tell people, you know, oh, I just riff like it. No, Hedberg, Hedberg could riff because he was seasoned. I riff because I'm seasoned, but... You better believe that it was hours upon hours upon hours of joke writing mm. that gives you that ability to leave your act and come back. You got to have something to come back to. Right. Yeah. yeah. You know? Right. I don't want to watch some newbie with no seasoning go on stage and try and riff his way through a set. Yeah. That's the worst. Are you kidding me? That's, that's like watching worst. a guy. So when someone comes to my house <laughs> and they don't play the drums... <laughs> But they want to sit at the drums oh, and pick this up. Yeah. It's nails on a fucking chalkboard. Oh, wow. It's because you're listening to someone who can't play the drums <laughs> bang your drums. <laughs> and you're listening to someone who doesn't know how to do comedy yet yeah. bang the drums. Oh, <laughs> Jesus. Yeah, that's a good analogy. And it's that's exactly how, what it's like, dude. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You yeah. know? Yeah. That's why you have to uh, suffer through all these... Uh, uh, 
rooms because you have to um you have to work this stuff out man like you can't you can't you can't bring out that garbage onto a main stage and you know right not only that but you got to know who you're working to you know even at the scene or the park you know and you're doing those bar show open mics right yeah or even when you're a newbie and you're doing those open yeah. mics right they're telling jokes to their friends in the back of the room yeah how the fuck is that gonna help you if there's two civilians in the room that aren't comics, work the two civilians. Yeah. Forget about everybody else in the mm -hmm. room. Your idiot friends are just as inexperienced as you are. Yeah. What the hell are they going to tell you? Yeah. The only person that's going to tell you if a joke is funny is a civilian who laughs at it when you tell it from the stage. Yeah. That's it. Yeah. Because what do we do? We hear a funny joke from the back of the room. What do we do? Well, we're silent, right? What do, what, we just go, <laughs> no. oh, that's funny. Yeah, yeah. We don't yeah. laugh. We just, right. Oh, that's funny. Right, right. Damn, I wish I wrote that. Right, Oh, right. that's a good joke. Yeah, we yeah. intellectualize joke. the joke. Yeah, right. For sure. You know? Yeah. It, very rarely, a Kindler. If yeah. Kindler's on stage, you might hear me belly laugh from the back <laughs> of the room, you know? Yeah. It's so hard. Comedy is so hard. Or Brody. I think uh, yeah, Brody, Brody was like, uh, you know, like I could still laugh even yeah after hearing it a thousand me times, too. dude. I can always laugh at Brody. Yeah. Because, again, Brody, like me, and we used to talk about this a lot, Brody's delivery was never the same twice. Mm. Brody, like me, was very much an in-the-moment, in-the-mood kind of guy. If I'm in a mood when I go on stage, that's the mood you're getting unless it breaks through my set. Yeah. Brody was very much that guy too. He didn't fake it on stage. Yeah. You know? Yeah, yeah. He never fucking he, phoned it in. Yeah. And he told you what he was it was going through, you know? I love honesty. Yeah. That's yeah. why, you know. Yeah, yeah. That's why I don't like, you know, the bullshit comics. Yeah. No offense to all you bullshit comics. <laughs> <laughs> you know, smart, funny, original, yeah. Know, seasoned, worked out. You can tell, you know, like I love Whitney Cummings. Yeah. You know, Whitney's funny as fuck, mm -hmm. even off the page. Yeah. Sarah, funny as fuck, yeah. even off the page. You know? Yeah. It's just, you just know. Yeah. And they put in the work. I mean, those people that you just mentioned, dude. I mean, I've seen both of those grinding. You know, grinding. Sarah since I'm 20 years old. Since yeah. she's 20, yeah. Mm. It's work and work. I was out, literally, I swear, Eric, the first two years, seven nights a week. I was either at an open mic, which were only three or four of them. Mm -hmm. Then, because Mark Price started me and got me in at the Laugh Factory, that was like where I'd hang every night. Mm. So I would always wind up at the Laugh Factory, and I would sit in the back of that room every night waiting for the last guy, and then I'd be, come on, Jamie, can I do five? Can and Jamie would finally throw me up after, like, the busboy at Greenblatt's got a spot. <laughs> you know, the street sweeper got a spot. <laughs> but you hang in, and there's two people left or three people smoking cigarettes at the lone table against the stage, and that's what you work to, you know? Yeah. And that's how you cut your freaking teeth. Yeah. You know? Yeah. These guys, none of them want to MC. None of them want to host. No. The entitlement that the internet has given artists. Yeah. And I don't think it's just comedians. No. No. You know? Yeah. Yeah. No, it's it's totally true, man. You know, people want to, you know, take shortcuts, dude, and they, they want to cut in line. Yeah, I heard uh, Sam Tripoli say that. And, uh, you know, because comedy is hard, you know, and these motherfuckers just want to skip the line, dude. They think it's easy. They go, oh, look, I see these people, you know, doing it. It yeah. must be easy. 
oh, I'm going to do an open mic. Hey, I did an open mic. I must be a comedian. Yeah. You know, it's not easy. Yeah. You know, and the minute you leave L.A., he hears the thing. They're writing localized comedy. You're right. They're not writing universal comedy. Right. You know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. The minute you leave L.A. and go tell your jokes in another state, you're going to find out that 75% of what you've written is incomprehensible to somebody in Kenosha right. or Grand Blanc, Michigan, yeah. or, you know, uh, Lake of the Ozarks, Missouri, or Erie, Pennsylvania. Yeah. You have to learn how to write universally funny stuff. Yeah. Yeah. You know, nobody cares about the Beverly Center or the right. Grove. Yeah. What no. do you, hey, you ever go to the Grove? Totally. Well, you don't have that here, but it's this place in L.A. Now right. all you... Really? That's how right. you're going to... I know. <laughs> you know I, mean? I know. Oh, dude. <laughs> Hearing that is just brutal, dude. <laughs> you know? Like, uh... <laughs> Here's a local reference from L.A., but I'm going to use it here in Utah. Exactly. Uh, you, you guys will get it. But first, let me <laughs> tell you about the place yeah, right. and waste three and a half right. minutes since your attention span is only seven seconds. Right. Yeah. You know? Yeah, yeah. Or they talk about the industry and their audition. <laughs> it's like <laughs> these people give a shit or they can't relate to. And it's just like. Uh, right? Yeah. Jokes. Yeah. And no matter what you tell me, no matter what any of these people tell me, well, comedy's changed. People don't really want to hear jokes anymore. Okay. That's not true. <laughs> okay. People don't go to comedy clubs to cry. Right. Or to read books. Yeah. Or to sit and wait for you to find the punchline. Yeah. They go expecting to hear punchlines. Right. That's why the name of the club is called The Punchline. Punch <laughs> yeah, yeah. Totally. You know? No, I know. This searching and meandering and alternative comedy. To me, alternative comedy is drama. <laughs> yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. Them working out their daddy issues. <laughs> yeah, I'm not your shrink. Yeah, yeah. You know? If I'm an audience member, I paid to listen to your stuff, and I want to laugh at it. Yeah. I don't want to feel bad for you. Yeah. Then give you my card at the end and tell you I charge 180 for 50-minute session. Yeah. <laughs> Ridiculous, dude. I know. It's pretty funny. Dude, what do you think about uh, Ron Jeremy having 20 counts of uh, allegations against How him? about our friend was his manager? Oh, yeah. (laughs) He cut ties with him real fast. Real fast, yeah, Yeah, I know. And I love our friend very, very much, you know. So for that to, you know, happen, I felt terrible for him and his wife. I really, really did. Yeah. Ron was never a guy that I bought. I never rented Ron's tapes. Uh (laughs) You know, I like porn. Yeah. But there's something about a fat, stinky, hairy, naked guy. (laughs) that will dude. kill a boner. Yeah. Dude, I I don't think I've ever seen a film of his, dude. Like, I mean, the guy just looks like a pedophile, dude. You know what I mean? He looks like, you know. So, before I ever met him, he does look creepy, right? Yeah, dude. Before I ever met him, I was, uh, no, this isn't true. I had met him at the Comedy Store years ago. I'm on a plane. I'm going to Vegas uh, to do, you know, five shows. And literally, I'm on a Southwest flight, and it's the 3-3 plane, and right in front of me is Ron and two prostitutes. Wow. Porn girls, whatever you want to call them. You know what I mean? But Ron, what people don't know is that Ron has potentially the worst BO on (laughs) any human being (laughs) on a daily basis ever. Yeah. I mean, seriously, he is as stunky as they get. 
Yeah. You know? So I'm sitting on the plane and I could just, oh, it was just gargantuanly terrible. And people are now complaining to the stewardess, excuse me, flight attendant, about the stink coming <laughs> really? from the plane. Jesus. And it's was wrong. it dried up cum? Oh, dude, it's <laughs> so just pathetic grossness. He is so just, uh, ugh. Yeah. Uh, but I'm not surprised. None of this surprises me at all. Yeah. You no, know? I know. Wow, it's crazy that it took so long, though. Because I've heard he's been doing this for, like, years. 20 years, like, or more. Easy. Right? I mean, it, you know. Easy. Yeah, come on. Easy. Amazing. He'll dude. do, he will get a hundred years in jail. Yeah. Ron Jeremy. I, I believe so. For His sure. bail is $6 million. Really? I just, I literally was just on Yahoo yesterday oh looking at God. stuff and something came up yesterday that said more people came out. Yeah. This new 15 year old. So wow. I, yeah. as I was reading the article, they yeah. said, you know, his bail is 6 million. 15 year old, man. I mean, come on, dude. Dude. Yeah. Dude. Yeah. I mean, don't yeah. get me started. Yeah. Don't get me started yeah. on that, you know? I am, it's, like I said, I like my porn. I'm a dirty boy. Mm -hmm. I, I have my own kinks like everybody else, yeah. and I will look you dead in the face and say, I don't give a shit what you do as long as you're not fucking kids. Yeah. I'm, I'm sorry. You know, you there's a line someplace. Yeah, yeah. Well, he's going to get his if he goes to prison or when he goes to he's prison, done. dude. I mean, because those, those guys don't last in prison, dude. Celebrity status or not. Yeah. I mean, look at Jared. Yeah, Jared, yeah. You know, is he still living? He apparently, I think he's still living, but he got put into segregated thing because remember because he they were they were attacking him. They were right? beating the yeah, shit yeah, out of yeah, him. Nobody right. cared how yeah, good that sandwich that. was. Oh, Nobody cares about that sandwich, Jared. Oh yeah, you travel to other countries, dude. Yeah, that's bad stuff. Not only that, dude. I mean, he was made a millionaire by that fucking company, dude. A millionaire, dude. He had all now the money in the world, in. dude. Yeah. Nope. But, I mean, think in. about, I mean, because that reminds me, uh, that makes me think of Epstein. And, you know, that guy had all the resources, all the money, uh, you know, at his fingertips. And just imagine, like, you know, all the power that these people have, dude. So they could get whatever they want, dude. So, like, on a silver platter, bro. Just think about that. Dude. I know. So, like, he snaps his finger. He's like... Yeah, you know, I want a 12-year-old, you know, Thai girl with red hair. I guess that's, you know, if, by the way, if you're surrounding yourself with those kinds of people, eventually, I mean, look, eventually the hammer's got to come down. Yeah. You can't keep that shit under wraps forever. No, no. You know, you just can't. I mean, look at Vince. Do you remember, do you remember Vince Champ? I don't know. It sounds familiar. Vince Champ was a stand-up comedian. Okay. In the 80s and the 90s. All right. <clears throat> um, black guy, but a sweater Cosby black guy. Hi. How are you doing? Oh. Vince Champ. Oh. Nice to meet you. Nice. Yeah. Argyle <laughs> sweaters. Yeah. Total, you know, like, I don't know the terminology I'm allowed to use now, so I'm yeah. avoiding all of it. But Vince, hi. How are you? Vince Champ. Nice to meet you. Vince was a serial rapist. Vince is in prison right now and will be for the rest of his life. Vince would go do college gigs and then rape girls on the college campuses. Wow. Okay? And one time he was doing a gig and the girl ripped off his ski mask. And it was the comedian. Wow. So when they finally arrested him, 
they ran searches back to unsolved rapes on college campuses. And what did they find? That Vince had performed on lots of these college campuses mm. where there were unsolved rapes. Yeah. And Vince got nailed with something like 17 or 18 rapes. He was a serial rapist. Yeah. Nicest guy. I knew the guy. I shared a hotel room with him at a gig when I was featuring and he was headlining. Seriously. Nicest guy. You would never, ever know. No. Vince Champ. Hi, Vince Champ, serial rapist. Nice to meet you. Yes. How would you know that? He didn't wear the ski mask around the apartment? No, I guess not. It wasn't not in the hotel room. No. And it's funny because it wasn't his opener. You'd think he'd walk out and be, hi, Vince Chan. <laughs> Break the ice. Dude, You yeah. like the ski mask? Funny thing about this ski mask. I got it at the dollar store. Exactly. <laughs> funny thing happened to me on the way to the gig. I raped some girl and got 99 years in prison. Yeah, that's crazy, dude. Crazy. Crazy. Yeah. I mean, look, w without naming names, we know comedians who have had issues brought up because of behavior. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And it's not okay. Yeah. You know? And I've been as promiscuous as the next guy mm -hmm. on the road, coming off a soap opera, being yeah. on the road. I was like a beetle. Yeah. But nobody will ever say he f did this or that. You know what I mean? Like, you, yeah. you just... There's a difference between yeah. being a normal person and no, okay, nice to meet you, and moving on and going no. What do you mean no? Yeah. Yeah, you know yeah. what I mean? Like snap. Yeah, yeah. I don't know what these <laughs> these people have. I mean, and it's it's so funny, man. Like. After seeing all these people get busted, you're starting to see a pattern here. <laughs> like, I, you know, like like you just mentioned this one guy, you know, Cosby sweater, like clean cut, right? Hi. You know, like this guy Seriously. can't be a rapist. You know what I mean? But, you know, that's a little too clean cut and something, there's a question mark that comes up. Right. What about the actress that was on that TV show that was part of the Nexium? Thing, Allison Matt, what was her name? The actress that was on the TV show that got swept up in the cult? Oh, uh, it's not the Remedy Girl, not the Scientology? No, it's not Scientology. It's the other one, New, New Nexium, I think it's called, or Nexus. Ne oh, I, yeah, I, I can't think of um, the actor's name. But there was this actress from a Big to, oh, Smallville. She was on Smallville. Smallville, yeah. Yes. Yeah, she was on Smallville, Smallville and got wrapped up in this cult thing and wound up like being a predator and getting these women to come in and be part of the cult. And then, yeah, she apparently, the, the trial is going on right now. Wow. I, yeah, that's crazy, dude. I mean, I think there's a weird thing that, ha that, that that's got a snap in a part like where your perversions take you over a legal line you know what I mean yeah yeah because there's porn for everybody you like midgets there's midget porn yeah you there's, know there's yeah. porn you like mop buckets and <laughs> old women from the hazel tv show there's made porn you know what I mean? Guaranteed. You can find maid. M-A-I-D. You <laughs> type in, go to your favorite porn search engines and type in maids. Oh, I know. It's I've that. Checked. There's porn for yeah. everybody. Right. So that's... 
And it's free. And it's free. (laughs) It's free, dude. What do you, what, what, you know what I'm saying? How is the, yeah, what's the push? I don't know, dude. They, you know, that's, you know, these, and then, you know, you meet other, you know, comedians that don't do drugs and don't drink. I don't trust them. (laughs) (laughs) I don't trust them at all. I'm the same way, dude. I don't trust anybody that doesn't drink or do drugs, dude. How how about this one? Oh, I never masturbate. Mm, (laughs) Oh, I trust that person. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, Right. Yeah. That's the, that's the waiter at the restaurant that Mm -hmm. when you say, um, what do you like on the? Oh, everything's fantastic. Yeah. Well, what don't you like? Right. Oh, everything's great. Right. I don't believe you. Yeah, either. yeah. Right. I need that waiter to tell me what they don't like. Right. Then what? Then their credit, right? Totally, dude. Same yeah, I was thing. a waiter, dude. I, I, I told, I, I told it like it is, dude. Don't don't get those Chipotle yeah, nachos. Right. They're disgusting. Yeah, yeah, dude, for sure. Yeah, and that's why, dude. Those. I always ask. The waiter, you know, what, you know, what, what should I get? You yeah, know, what's what good? Do you what like, you get? Yeah. What don't you like? Right. Yeah. Exactly. Got to tell me what you don't like. Right. If exactly. The answer, oh, everything's fantastic. Right. Come on, dude. Yeah. 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 Come on. Yeah. And if you and and if the thing that you like is the most expensive thing, then fuck you. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. yeah. You know, oh, the filet mignon is like perfect. Yeah. Of I, course I, it is. I it wa- should. It's a hundred dollars. Exactly. You know <laughs> what I want to hear is listen. Don't get the mushroom underwear souffle. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? I don't even know why it's on the menu. Nobody gets it. Yeah. Uh, oh, that's a sh- I was literally looking at the mushroom underwear souffle. I was yeah. going to get that. Uh, <laughs> did you ever wait tables? I did. Bartend? <clears throat> I did. I bartended. I waited tables. I sold a uh, fuel saver for your car over the phone. <laughs> I, um, I, uh, well, where else are you going to sell that? <laughs> I, 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 sold, <laughs> I sold moves for starving students oh. over the phone. What? I was a phone operator for starving students selling moves when oh, I man. yeah, I've I did that. I um Jeez. I was a caterer dude, like you know, at the parties where you go and you with the the Yeah, black tie, yeah, of course. The penguin Best. suit. Yeah, the penguin suit. I was the worst at that. The Why? worst. I'm like twenty, twenty one years old, you know, everyone's doing the Rocco, the catering stuff because yeah. you need to make money while you're still and I yeah. was at Paramount. Oh, okay. And I'm st- Doing yeah, stand the side up, hustle. But got the side hustle. Yeah. So I'd show Multiple up ones. and I realized yeah. my first day the bartenders had all the power mm-hmm. and the easiest job. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. The servers, they're running around and setting up and right. clearing tables. Yeah. Right? That's far too much work right. for this guy. Right. Okay. <laughs> oh, totally. So when it's time to do the clearing, I was the guy who would just walk around yeah. looking busy, but yeah. doing nothing. For sure. You know, and you know those caterer people that do that. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that was me. Nice. I was, that was me, too. I, I was very bad that at the job. That was me, too. And then, finally, they called me and they go, look, I said, the bartenders make $22 an hour. The servers make 10 you know, I have a bar kid. I need to bartend. So they yeah. gave me a bartending job oh. at the big party for the rap party for the movie Big. Mm, yeah. No, wrong. For that thing you do. Tom Hanks' oh. movie that he directed. Wow. That thing you do. You were bartending there? I was bartending At the rap there. party? At the rap party. Oh, wow. And I served. Where was it? Uh, right near 20th Century Fox, mm. like across the street at the park area. Oh, because okay. they set up. Fun stuff, you know. Oh, okay. And um, I served Forrest Whitaker and Tom Hanks, cool. and I poured drinks for everybody, and they tipped me, and I went home with like $300. Nice. Yeah. So I was like, that I can do. Yeah. 
you know? Yeah. So I went to bartending school and like learned how to be a good bartender. Yeah. Never used it. And then when I moved to New York, I bartended for a little while, you know, mm-hmm. but I did a lot of the odd jobs, man. Yeah, I did. I did a lot of the, odd, I trimmed weed back in the nineties for, I mean, I did whatever it took to keep the money coming in. Mm-hmm. Yeah, sure. You know, what made you move to New York? Well, I'm from New York originally. My family moved here when I was in junior high school. We left Long Island, moved to L.A., so I graduated high school here. And I feel like a New Yorker still. It's For some reason, it's always been in my grain. And people even say to me, you're so New York, really? You went to high school here? And it's mm-hmm. like, so I started going back and forth a lot. Even in my 20s and 30s, I'd go back and study acting and take classes. And I started doing stand-up, so I wanted to do stand-up in New York. So in my early 20s, I was just going back and forth. And I just always knew I wanted to move back. And then um, 2001, I went back to see a friend of mine in June for his wedding. And I was like, I'm definitely moving back before the end of the year. Met a girl in... In 2001? Yeah. Met a girl. Listen listen to the story. I meet a girl at the Houdini Mansion on Laurel Canyon at a big industry party thing. And uh, we just like hit it off. Chemistry. Boom. She lived in New York City. We're talking on the phone. I'm supposed to go see her. And I'm supposed to leave September 12th. To move to New York? To go see her. Oh, just to see her. Yeah. Right. 9-11 happens. Mm-hmm. Can't get on a plane. Everything's grounded. I get on the first plane like September 16th. Literally, I was on the first flight of, out of LAX to New York. That's how bad <laughs> You're I like, I'm going. Yeah, I got Obviously, dude. Holy sh... Dude, you flew on September 16th? First flight out of LAX Ew. I was on. And the dude sitting next to me, literally, as we're like taxiing out to the runway, the guy leans over to me. I just hit this, but I yeah, think yeah. we're okay. Yeah, we're good. The guy leans over to me and he goes, uh, hey, listen, you know, if anything goes down, I got your back. I go, wow. You got my back? <laughs> no, 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 pal. If anything goes down, I'm in the back of the plane. You don't want my back. I'm going to lead you astray. But literally, the guy says that to me. Like, if anything goes down, yeah, you know, hilarious. I got your back. I don't want anything to go down. I just want to <laughs> get to New York City, you know? So I got there September 16th. I was supposed to stay like five days. I stayed eight. Came home. Held a garage. Sales sold everything. Moved back to New York October 16th. Wow. Literally. A month after 9-11. Crazy. Terrible time in the city. It was horrible and sad and depressing and back then where'd you move to the west village i got an unbelievable deal on an apartment in a doorman building i bet i had the sickest apartment in the west village in a doorman building like ridiculous because i i bet a lot of people fled new york they did right so they did people left what's happening right now in la and and uh you know you're seeing rents go down and uh because people are leaving la never a better time to buy property uh-huh. Never a better time to move if you want to reduce your rent. Right now? Right now. Yeah. Seriously. But never a better time to buy property, that's for sure. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah, that's what happened. I got a killer apartment right in the West Village on 13th and 7th. Doorman elevator, 22 stories, all utilities included, 1300 bucks a month. Like, wow. I was like a king in New York City. I bet. Yeah. Yeah. Dude, that's that is crazy. Who moves to New York after 9-11? Chastler. Ask me yeah. why I moved back to LA. Oh, why'd you move back to LA? Met another girl. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Jesus. Yeah, I was pitching this woman a 
Michaud. She worked for uh, Mark Cronin at the time, who had developed um, Flava Flav mm-hmm. and Rock of Love. Yeah, those were his shows, and so I was pitching his development executive. She hit on me in the pitch. We wound up. I flew to L.A. to see her. Went back to New York, <laughs> sublet my apartment, and moved back to L.A. <laughs> Damn you, women! <laughs> when was that? Were you oh five? Oh five? Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's when I started comedy. And, uh, yeah, it's, it's crazy. So I met you uh, probably shortly after that. You were, I met you in 08 uh-huh. at the Ha Ha. Yeah. And mm-hmm. you were doing stuff about, like, Mexican gardeners. Yeah. And leaf blowers, I remember. Yeah. And, um, yeah, you were, like, a really nice guy. You were hosting that night, I remember. Yeah. You brought me up. Yeah. Yeah. That's where I met you. You were about three years in. Wow. Yeah. Well, now you're seasoned. Now, you're, now you've had your comedy bar mitzvah, and you're a man. <laughs> <laughs> Just kidding. Yeah, and I used to see you all the time at the improv. Uh, I used to like going over there, uh, you know, before they remodeled the, yes. the bar, dude. Remember how great that I was, do. dude? It was oh so my amazing. God. Yeah. I loved that place. Yeah, dude. Oh, my God. So can I ask you a question? Yeah. So you've been in it 15 years now. Yeah. Do you remember... Like a specific incident or set or show where it changed for you and you went from being like, oh, I hope I have a good set tonight and whatever, to being on stage and realizing that you finally owned it, that you owned your act and you knew the trapdoors and that you had a solid 30 minutes as a feature and that like you really, do you remember when that turning point was for you? Yeah. When was it? Um, like, uh, well, here's the thing though. It, it ended up, uh, turning again because I realized that, that, that person, uh, was not me. Interesting. So. Interesting. Yeah. I love that. Yeah. I yeah. love that. And it was like, almost like starting over again. I love that. Mm, yeah. And, uh, it, you know, because I, you know. You know, when we first start out, you know, like we're we're an exaggeration of ourselves a little bit, you know, because we're <laughs> just. Uh, Dude, yeah. I was an actor acting like it's like yeah. a stand up comedian, like what I thought, like I was going on stage my first two and a half years. If you look at my videotapes, hey, how you guys doing? Mm-hmm. Like I was acting sure. like I thought a stand up comedian was supposed to act. Sure. I couldn't even get out of that for two and a half mm, years. Wow. You know what I mean? Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, dude. Uh, you know, and I see it too with other comedians. They get locked in this persona, dude. And guess what? That's going to be you, buddy, for the next. I hope you like this uh, uh, persona that you've uh, created. You know, like like the, um, you know, the uh, uh, dim-witted college guy. <laughs> right. <laughs> Try being that when you're 50, dude. Good luck. <laughs> I have a very good friend, and I love him dearly, and he's a very funny guy and a really good stand-up. Um, his name's David Wright. Do you know Dave Wright? Sounds familiar. He's from San Diego originally. Yeah. So Dave's a good guy. And yeah, he's, dude. He used to hang with... Um, uh, Mark uh, Saratella, he's yeah, friends and, with. And Brett Ernst. And Brett Ernst, yeah. right. So Dave's a really good what guy. What happened to him? He moved back to San Diego. Oh, okay. Okay, so he's a good guy, and he still does stand-up and everything, but the first time I saw Dave on stage was about... 
Six or eight oh, wait, months. No, I'm, I was thinking about a different Dave. Now I know Dave right, dude. I love Dave, dude. Yeah, Short shorter guy. guy. Yeah, yeah dude. worked in the weed industry. For right. sure, dude. Great guy. guy. Great guy. So the first time I saw Dave on stage, we had already been friends for like six or eight months, hanging out, smoking, going to breakfast, you know, whatever. Then he says to me, hey, man, I got to set at the improv. I'm hosting. Will you please come watch? I really want you to give me some notes and whatever. So he went on stage, and all of a sudden, this guy with a southern accent came out, and I was like, what the, f- who is this person? So I watched him, and he came off stage. He goes, what'd you think? I go, I think you have a southern cousin. <laughs> and he was like, oh, yeah. That, that. I go, what the hell? He goes, I don't know, man. It just comes out sometimes. Mm. I go, well, what are you hiding from then? Because that's a that becomes a defense mechanism that yeah. you're hiding behind yeah. for some reason. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Yeah. So what is it about the jokes you don't think are selling themselves on their own? Right. Yeah. You know, because he all of a sudden had this like gruff sort of like Southern uh, tang in his delivery, yeah, you know, and I was like, so funny. Now I could, I could hear it. I, I you know, and yeah. I still bust his balls about it whenever he tells me, oh, I'm doing the thing. I'm going, really? You're going to do the Southern thing? Uh, <laughs> the Southern thing. Yeah. But he, 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 when I brought it to his attention, he was like, wow, you know, that's amazing. Like I never even, I go, it's the first thing I heard. Wow. Yeah, dude. Yeah. So yeah. it takes, and again, for me. 15 years it took me. 15 years. I believe it, dude. To this guy who you're talking to now, that these people are watching, Mm -hmm. okay? When I'm on stage, this is the guy that you're dealing with, right? Mm -hmm. You know, you see me, right? Yeah. But it all happened for me with one thing. I swear to God that changed it for me. I stopped taking the mic out of the stand. Mm. And I, you see, I talk with my hands a lot, right? Yeah. I'm very relaxed that way. And I think it's part of my charm. People have said to me like, wow, you're very handsy and you're talking. It's kind of charming to watch. So one night I'm on stage at the improv. It was raining. I had a set. It was like a Thursday night. Had a drink in my hand, had a coat over my shoulder, had my comedy notebook and an umbrella. And I walk on stage and I like my hands are full. And as I'm saying hello to everybody, I'm putting stuff down and putting it on the piano and whatever. And, you know, I just never got to taking out the microphone. And all of a sudden I'm having this crushing set on a rainy night and I couldn't figure out what was going on. And then all of a sudden my, 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 uh, like I realized I could see both my hands moving while I'm talking. I realized I wasn't holding the microphone. I had a new level of relaxation that I had never had before because for some reason holding the mic turned me into this half stand-up comedian, half man. You know what I mean? Like when you take it out, you become something new. So when I didn't take it out, I was still the same guy. And that's why I don't, you know, I'm one of those I don't take the mic out comedians now. But I was for 15 years. Now I just drag the stand around the stage with me. But it changed. It literally having both my hands free to be able to do this with made it possible for me to be relaxed and feel like myself on stage. By the way, for those of you who can't see what's going on, Eric runs an amazing show here. Thanks, buddy. He's not only the host and the booker and the director (laughs) up in the booth, but he's also the cameraman. He's the tech guy. You can't see right now, but he's actually doing the whiteboard. Eric does everything, and he's got it all under control. 
I even parked his car. Even parked my car. Yeah. He pulled up and came into the dressing room. Mr. Chastler, what can I get for you? <laughs> Could you imagine having a podcast with a dressing room? Yeah. That would be so cool. Dude, you know, that's so funny. Like, I, I had one of those moments uh, with the mic, uh, mic stand. Right. And uh, I did really well uh, with, the you know, my hands free like that. I was like, wow, this is amazing. This is what I'm going to do. And then so I tried it the next show and I bombed. <laughs> you know? So um, stick with it, though. Yeah, yeah. If you feel like you're more comfortable on stage not having to hold that microphone. Yeah. Then do 10 shows. Yeah. It's like when you write a new joke. People are like, oh, I wrote this new joke. I tried it. It didn't work. So I put it away. I go, how many times did you try it? Well, once and it didn't work. I go, you got to do that joke yeah. 10 times oh, in front right. of 10 different yeah. audiences to find out if the joke has any yeah. merit or legs. Yeah. You know, and if it gets a laugh here and doesn't get a laugh here and gets two laughs here and doesn't get a laugh here, then you got to figure out what works about the joke, what doesn't work about the joke, and you got to tweak it. Yeah. But you don't just do it once and throw it away. Right. So yeah. do like 10 sets if yeah, you really yeah. felt good, bro. Because you're so funny Thanks, anyway. Man. I mean, you have, you're so funny anyway that do like 10 sets without taking the mic out and see if you don't settle into it. See if it doesn't click. Yeah, yeah. You for know? sure. No, but I, I, I know, it, you know, like it's, it's, it, it's funny, man. It's like, so, I mean, you, so you felt like you took on a, a different persona. Um, did you feel like um, when when you moved from holding the mic to leaving it in there, or I'd, you felt more like yourself, or what what happened there? I felt a hundred percent relaxed. For the first time, it was the my Achilles heel for the first fifteen years of doing stand up. And remember, I had worked my way up from an opening act to a headliner. I was on the road working forty weeks a year. I, yeah. I wasn't not doing the job. Yeah, I just wasn't satisfying myself in a way that I thought like this art form should be. And so for the first time I felt like this, I was the same guy off stage that I was on stage, which is the hardest thing in stand up to do. Yeah. You know, people go, Oh my God, you're so funny. You should do stand up comedy. And you go, Oh, I'll give it a try. Then you go do stand up comedy. And the guy on stage is not the guy in the office who's right. cutting it up yeah. because of 8 million different factors. The Southern guy from San Diego, you know, <laughs> <laughs> but there are 8 million different factors. Like, you know, about nervousness yeah. and expectation and fear yeah. and yeah. stakes and yeah. all those things that make it impossible for that guy off stage to be the guy on stage. And that's what takes the most time to figure out, yeah. you know, and for me, it was 15 years, yeah. you yeah. know, I'm, yeah. I'm, again, working stand-up comedian yeah. on the road, working mm. 40 weeks a year, consistently yeah. became a headliner. But when I stopped taking that mic out, all of a sudden I became that, I became, I, my comedy, the whole thing was on another level. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. Now it, it, it became all, there was never a question, never a fear, never a anything. The, it changed all the confidence issues. It changed the truth issue. It changed everything because I was sitting in my living room. It felt like I was just in my living room. That's great, dude. So it wasn't a new persona at all. I got rid of any bullshit persona on stage. And it just made it possible for me to be the same guy on stage that I was the same guy off stage. Not an act. Yeah, and that that's the thing that I enjoy the most about stand-up comedy now. 
I'm having more fun after 35 years with my act now. Like 20 years in, I remember going through a thing where I wasn't having fun. Yeah. I didn't really love my act. I didn't love the material. And, you know, you write new material, but there's still something in your life that you're not writing what you want to be talking about. Yeah. Yeah. That happened with me. You know? Yeah. And then all of a sudden, one thing clicks or changes, then all of a sudden, you just become a different artist. Yeah. Dude, I mean, like, that's... See, that's that's something I don't think you could teach anybody. You have to go through it, right? You have to go through it. But I think that if you're, a, like, someone who takes comedy classes or whatever, I think that you should at least be prepared to know. Like, if you have a decent teacher, the teacher should be telling you, like, whatever you think you're doing now, you're not going to be doing in four years. Yeah. So understand that there's a developmental process here. Yeah. And you're full of shit. The minute you walk on that stage. Yeah. You know, my job as teaching you this is to tell you these things, to not give you some false sense of security. Yeah, you know what I yeah. mean? Like, yeah. No, totally. Dude, honestly, if I knew it, it was going to take all this work and all this long to do it, I probably wouldn't have started. Fuck no. I never, ever, ever, right? ever wanted to do this. Yeah. Never yeah. did I want to be a stand-up comedian, ever. I was an actor. I was living in my car. Yeah. It was romantic. Yeah. I'm studying with Stella Adler. I'm a guard at Paramount. I'm doing plays. You yeah. know what I mean? Like, I'm about to be a movie star. Yeah. I'm friends with Michael Fox and then fucking Skippy. <laughs> whose life is always fucked up, decided to fuck mine up too. Hey, Rich, you're so funny. You should do stand-up comedy. Him and um, the guy from Back to the Future, right? You want to hear something funny? The guy from Back to the Future who played Biff? Yeah. Him and Mark had the same managers. Really? Scott Rubin and Doug Corey. They Uh, managed both of them, yes. Oh, interesting. Yes. I know. Crazy time. Yeah. And they're both still doing it, right? I mean, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You know. Yeah. I mean, Mark, yeah, I'm not going to sit here and badmouth other comedians. Yeah. You know, I mean, your reputation is your reputation. We are, I always say we are the sum of our actions. Yeah. Not the sum of our words. You know? Yeah. I like that. So your wife could tell you how much she loves you every day and you come home early from work one day and she's banging the next door neighbor. You don't love me that much. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, dude. That's why I hate people that, that constantly talk, you know, what they're going to do and what they're about. It's like, dude, don't tell me. Show me. Yeah. Just, just fucking be it, dude. Don't fucking, I don't want to hear this. You know, and that's, that's what you hear so often, you know? Yeah. Well, you know, it's such a fucked up thing because, first of all, we live in a city that perpetuates um, false images. So even to feel like you're just to feel like you are an equal person mm-hmm. on a daily basis, you, there's this compulsion to broadcast to other people, "Hey, I'm in the game too." You know what I mean? Yeah. And it's shitty that the town is predicated on that. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Yeah. Kind of like Wall Street in New York or the politics game in D.C. Wherever Mm -hmm. there's power and money. Yeah. People want in that game. Yeah. And they're going to have to posture because nobody wants to do business with someone who isn't already in the game. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. They're not going to hire a stockbroker who's never done a big deal. 
So the broker's going to bullshit a little bit and inflate, you know what I mean? Yeah. They have to to get the business. It's unfortunate. It sucks. Yeah. Then you got the guys like me. Hey, I've never done it, but I'll do a really good job for you if you want to take a shot. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. I'm terrible at that game. Terrible. Oh, dude, same here, man. I, I, I'm terrible at that. I'm terrible, <laughs> terrible at fucking being phony and like, you know, shaking hands and kissing babies, you know, so right. to speak. And just like, yeah, doing this, you know, I'm networking and this and that. It's like, and look uh, at all the mediocre talent that's really good at networking. Right. Exactly. And you're like, how the fuck did he get that? Yeah, yeah. Oh, dude, they're great at putting on that smile, dude. And fucking, t- you know, saying fucking just bullshit. Kiss you the know? right baby. Yeah, right. Exactly. And, uh, and then we see these guys, you know, get, uh, you know, great spots at clubs and get on great shows and, you know, things that, you know, but, you know, we're in it for the long haul. So, yeah, the great spots at clubs and stuff, that's all different now. I mean, the yeah. merit is not there. It's, you know, because the clubs don't necessarily book the comics anymore. They're produced shows. So it's your friends who's doing the shows. Right. You know what I mean? It's like, hey, I got a spot at the improv tonight. Yeah, but the improv didn't hire you. Right. You know? Yeah. I mean, that does, I mean, what does that say about the club, though? It says a lot of things about the business. Right. And that is that the clubs no longer want to take on the responsibility, the time, and the financial investment to promote and book and do it right and let other people bring in the business. All they want to do is sell drinks. You know, the Improv was the number one comedy club in the country. When I got passed by Bud Friedman, there were two shows a night, 7.30 and 9.30, each show had 15 comedians on it, and every one of those comedians was a working, seasoned stand-up. Every one of them. I mean, I was on the younger side, but I got spots. I was paid. Bud finally passed me. I was uh, six years in. You know, I was a working feature act. Now, I mean, Flappers doesn't even pay their comedians. They feed us, you know, dude. I mean, I mean, we were talking about uh, the Refried Friday show that you you're doing. That was one of the hottest nights. At, at that was such a great night, it, it, and I tanked in front of a fucking oh, packed room at Melbourne. The white guy, yeah. I literally went. Yeah. Out. I was the white guy. Well, <laughs> I mean, but you know. I, I don't think it, it was you, but you know comics that pander. You know, they're like, oh, we're in front of the Latino crowd or we're, we're this and that. And, uh, you know, they, they turn into uh, that guy. Yeah. How about those chalupas? Right. Yeah, exactly. I'm not even Mexican. I know that's not a real word. <laughs> right? You dude, know what totally. I mean? Come on, dude. Is that as smart as you can get? I know. <laughs> what the fuck? <laughs> 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 Hilarious, dude. So you're you're a big deadhead, big deadhead. Yeah, still to this day. Wow. Yep. And you play the drums? I do. What else? Uh, I taught myself a little piano. I can play rhythm guitar and harmonica. And um, I, I took a year of trumpet. I can't play it. I took a year of clarinet. I can't play it. Wow. Yeah. Really cool, man. So you still got the drum set? Sure do. Wow. Yeah, I jam with my Dude, friends and your neighbors must love you, huh? Well, we go to studio, you know, we oh, go right, you? yeah, we go to a music studio. Oh, okay. or we go to my buddy's house and uh in fact a friend of mine uh who I used to play in a band with, 
a really great band called Miracle Ticket. Grateful Dead tribute band. Not a cover band, a tribute band. Cool. It was really awesome. He wants to put the band back together. Mm. And part of me is kind of like, yeah, I would love that. Nice. You know? Have you seen uh, John Mayer play with him? So good. Is he? Dead End Company, they call themselves. Uh. And I've seen many, many John Mayer shows with them. Yeah, it's good to hear. And then, you know what? There's a lot of comedians who love the dead. You know, whenever I go see a dead show, I run into like, you know, the Sklar Brothers. Jeff Ross will be there. I mean, I run into guys who, I mean, um, yeah, there's a lot of guys who love the dead. Cool. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, dude, for sure, man. Uh, yeah, I used to book my comedy tour around Grateful really? Dead shows. Yeah, no back way. in the late eighties and nineties, I used to. Uh, I would they would announce their tours. Yeah, and I'd get on the phone and call bookers, and I'd say, "Hey, what do you got here, here, here?" And uh, I would put my show so I could go see the dead on the road. Yeah, and then I would pack up these lyric books that you would sell in the parking lot of Grateful Dead shows, and I would cool. turn my mediocre comedy money <laughs> into more money, and I'd be out there seeing shows. And I mean. Being on the road, I saw the Grateful Dead while I was doing stand-up in Michigan, Utah, um, Florida, um, uh, Ohio. Wow. Yeah, I mean, I saw the Dead all over the country while I was just on the road doing gigs. Dude, that's so cool. (laughs) (laughs) Some people want to go to malls when they're on the road. Yeah. I'll go to go see Jerry. Dude, that's so cool, man. Yeah. Do you have like a, a certain uh, show that sticks out more than others or? One that I was at or one just that they've played? Uh, one that you were at. Yeah. Yeah, there's a few that really stick out as being just like incredible shows. Yeah? Yeah. Um, in California? One of them that sticks out was at Laguna Seca Raceway, 1988 in California. Los Lobos. Nice. Opened. Oh, cool. Jerry came out and played with Los Lobos. Oh, that's so cool. Yeah, that was a that was insane. They were so Los Lobos is a great band. Anyway. Yeah, yeah. <clears throat> but they took a Grateful Dead song and played it. Oh no way! And it was so good that they yeah became part of their repertoire. And then Deadheads see. The Grateful Dead have incredibly loyal, very, very smart, discerning music fans. Mm-hmm. So if they hire you to open for them on a show, their fans are now going to become your fans. Mm. They call it a curse. Mm. So like Los Lobos all of a sudden had Deadhead showing up to their shows. Ah, <laughs> that's cool. That's way cool. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so that show sticks out just because the weekend was amazing. It was camping up in the hills in Laguna Seca up in Monterey, California. Mm-hmm. That sticks out as being an amazing show. Yeah, it's cool, man. Yeah, I, I just took a road trip up to Monterey not too long ago in Big Sur. It's I love it up over there, dude. And there's wine country yeah. up there, and it's gorgeous. Yeah, yeah. yeah. When, when did you get into wine? When I moved back to New York in 2001, um, right around then, I, uh, I took a bartending job. Because I wanted to get off the road. I was on the road like crazy. I moved back to New York because I wanted to act more. I wanted to do New York theater. I wanted to do Law and Order. Nice. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And I did all that stuff when I moved back. You know, I did Law and Order. I did some theater. And um, I could totally see you on Law and Order. Yeah. And I got (laughs) it. Thanks. And I got a job bartending at this place in Soho. And the chef uh, turned me on to some Bordeaux one night because the owner had screwed us out of a tip. And that was it. I was hooked. And I started drinking wine in New York. And when I moved back in 05, I had actually had a, amassed like a little bit of a wine collection that I brought back. And now I've got about 500 bottles. Wow. Yeah. 
Wow, five hundred <laughs> bottles. Yeah. Jesus, I know it's kind of crazy. It really is absolutely crazy. Are you part of a wine club or a few? So they send you those wines through the mail? Uh huh. Some of them, yeah. But I'm real selective about that. You know, I like small production stuff. You know, mm-hmm. where they're not making fifty thousand cases, maybe eighty. No, oh, okay. You know, yeah, better grown grapes, better wines, a little more expensive, but you're getting better stuff. Nice. Yeah. And um, and I go wine tasting, and when I'm on the road, I make my opening acts take me to vineyards, and you know, my friends are always like, "Oh, dude, I'll come open for you." I go, "Okay, but there's no malls and movies." <laughs> okay, we're gonna find wine to taste every day, no yeah. matter where we are. Yeah. If I'm in Georgia, there's wineries. If I'm in Tennessee. There's wineries. There's growing grapes in all 50 states now. Really? Yes. Jesus. Yeah. It's really exploded in the past 20 years. So you get yourself a good uh, Ohio. uh, (laughs) Don't laugh. Don't laugh. (laughs) Because every climate grows different, is is, um, conformed, like, is, is good climate for different types of grapes. Okay. Right? So Pinot Noir grows well in cooler climate. has very thin skin. Heat kills it, right? Riesling grows really great in cooler climate. So, like, oh, okay. the Finger Lakes in upstate New York yeah. now grow and make world-class Rieslings that rival Germany because the, um, the temperature and the weather is very, very similar to Germany that they are actually growing insanely good grapes up there now. Nice. Yeah. In Virginia... The climate is perfect to grow a white grape called Viognet, which is one of my favorite French white grapes. Virginia's making world-class Viognet now. Like, who would know? How would you think about that? So you make fun of Ohio grapes, <laughs> Okay. You'd be surprised. All of a sudden, you go, oh, wow, Ohio's perfect to grow Bernarda. Mm. Or what, you know what I mean? And then, like, wow. Yeah. I was in Arizona with Swartzen. He didn't, she slept in, didn't want to do anything Saturday afternoon. So Saturday's wine tasting day. I find a local wine shop downtown close to the hotel. Do some wine tasting, go over there. They've got some stuff open. We're talking. He realizes I know my stuff. Mm -hmm. So he goes, you want to taste something really special? I go, what? And he goes, I make a wine. I go, in Arizona? He goes, yep. I make a Cab Franc and the grapes are grown in the Chiricahua Mountains. And he opened a bottle that was amazing. Wow. 20 bucks for the bottle, and the guy has made sick good wine in Arizona. I bought a bottle. He wouldn't charge me. I took it home. was sitting in my cellar four or five years. I drank it about, I don't know, three months ago during pandemic. The wine was so good that I did a funny wino blog and spotlighted his wine. Wow. Yeah. Like, really good. So... What's going on now is pretty impressive that you can, Napa is not the only place that makes wine. Really? Really. Wow. Yeah. That's great, man. It's good. It's interesting. It's easier than just doing one thing, being a stand-up comedian. What do you do? I'm a comedian. What else do you do? I'm a comedian. Right. I'm funny all the time. I tell jokes and I only hang out with comedians. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's why I, 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 uh, I had a casting director say that to us uh, when I took a class from him, and he was just like, have other things besides uh, acting. You know, like live your life. You know, go. it's not all about acting. And, you know, at that time, that was really hard to hear because, you know, I was probably here, you know, f- 
you know, three years at the time, I was ultra focused. Was right. Like, no, it's all about acting. It's, it's all, all I want to do is yeah, act. Yeah. Uh, 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 all day, every day. Doing you know? four plays at the same time. Yeah. <laughs> I know. Yeah, I know, right? tough. So it wasn't until like years after that that it really sunk in. All of that stuff, I don't care what kind of art you practice. If you're a ballerina, if you're a musician, if you're an actor, if you're a stand-up comedian, if you're a chef, because I consider cooking to be a, a massive art form, Everything you do outside of your art form enriches your life. It gives you a greater um, a point of reference yeah. for things when you're creating. Brings in new information all the time, new people all the time. Again, more forms of reference. Yeah. So as an actor, the more experience you have in your life, the greater library of experiences you can apply to your characters. Yeah. And get more enriched characterizations because you know more stuff. Right. right. You know? Yeah, absolutely. I, you know, took uh, years of uh, learning and yeah. uh, living life to really uh, to see how true that is. Because that happened with uh, stand-up comedy, too. Right. After a while, like, I was just, like, doing so many gigs and so many... Uh, you know, living that stand-up comedy life, and I had no life to draw from. When you're on the road, look, I understand that people start stand-up and they don't really understand that, like, if you want to be a stand-up comedian, there's only one way to do that. You can't, otherwise it's a hobby. Yeah. You have to leave Los Angeles or New York or Chicago mm -hmm. or Detroit, and you have to go on the road and work. Yeah. That's where the gigs are, yeah. outside, on the road. Yeah. And you have to do that 35, 40, 45 weeks a year because mm -hmm. you have to work every week. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. So you go out for four, five, six weeks, come back for a week or two, then you leave again for another three, four, five weeks. Mm -hmm. Come back for a week or two, then you leave again for another five weeks, six weeks. And that's the life of a working stand-up comedian. You know, so... You have to figure out while you're on the road how to incorporate your hobbies and your interests and whatever else you dig doing into your daily life because you're on the road and it's a lot of traveling. And so if you're a music person, you try to go see some music. After your show, you go across the street to a bar where there's a band playing and you get some music into your soul, like whatever it is. Yeah. Some guys just work, go to the hotel room, work, try to get laid, go to the hotel room, work, yeah. try to get laid, go to the hotel room. You know, it's like. I mean, I did that for 10 years, but then it's yeah. like, this guy, there's got to be something else to do. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Some comedians uh, work, rape, then go back to the hotel room. Yeah. <laughs> well, work, try to get laid, work, rape. Yeah. You know, <laughs> what do you think about all these new accusations with all these stand-up comedians, dude? Um... Part of me wants to say, you know, I like evidence before I start commenting. And then the other part of me is like, well, I mean, you know, it's one that, of these people has clearly always been creepy and. Uh, yeah. You know, and the other one, we always knew liked young girls and mm. I've known the guy for 30. I mean, it's like, what are you going to say? Like, <sighs> yeah, I'm so glad. I'm so glad I'm like in my past. There's no 15-year-olds. Yeah. You know? Yeah, dude. Yeah, same here, dude. Uh, you know, I, I always liked older women. I, now I like younger women, but well, not that older. young. Yeah. You know? I mean, but, yeah, I always liked over, older women. When I was yeah. 23, I was dating a woman who was 32. Mm -hmm. 
You know, then yeah. when I was 32, I was dating a woman who was 23. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> but, you know, it's a, but no, you know, mm-mm. yeah. Mm, I don't even get the attraction. First of all, it's hard enough dating a woman so much younger than you that she doesn't know the same musical references right. or pop culture references yeah. as you do. Try dating someone who never took algebra. <laughs> No, let me change that joke. Try somebody who hasn't taken algebra yet. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, yeah. what, I don't want to talk about your locker combination. No, dude. I know. You know what I mean? I'm yeah. sorry. I can't go with you to homecoming. <laughs> I know, dude. It's, 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 I mean, I don't know, dude, what the, <laughs> these guys were talking to these girls about, but <laughs> you know what I mean? Oh, uh, no, that's an easy one. That's a very easy one. Mm, TikTok. Okay. No, well, yeah, but the the issue is that, and again, this is why I say you have to do other things Mm. outside your art. Yeah. Because your confidence cannot solely depend on being fed from that. Yeah. Your sense of self-worth cannot only come from being acknowledged through your art. Yeah. Because that's your job. Yeah. You know what I mean? There have to be other things. Sure. You know, so if you're one of those people that really don't do much of anything else, I mean, you know. Yeah. Then you love the accolades. Oh, yeah. you're so funny. Oh, I love that show. Oh, that thing when you do that thing. is it? Yeah. And some guys need to. No, we all need to hear right. this. But not all of us need to hear it all the right. time. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. And I think that's a big part of it is that they are exploiting um, naivete and um, their own need for accolades from someone not yet developed enough to understand that. Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's... It's like robbing, to me, it's like robbing a jewelry store. It's, it's it, You're robbing somebody. Yeah. You really are. You're taking away things from somebody that they desperately need to become a well-rounded adult. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I have no forgiveness for that. And again, like I said, I when I started going on the road and I came off a soap opera or whatever and people, oh, I'm not lying. I absolutely had my share and everybody else's share of fun. Yeah. But. Yeah, dude, you, you got to draw the line. It's not even yeah. drawing the line. It's just, you never, I never even thought about right. that. Yeah. It's not even here, a dude. line to be right. drawn. Like, yeah. it, you, you, there's right and wrong. Right. And my parents didn't do a great job because my dad was an asshole, but I got lucky I was surrounded with by people who mm-hmm. taught me right from wrong. And you just always know. Yeah. Like, don't hang your cat from a doorknob. That's wrong. Yeah. You know? I mean, don't you think, like, part of it is, like, a power trip they're on? I absolutely think that when you have a sense of celebrity, and, again, you're not, your soul isn't diversified. Yeah. And your whole sense of worth depends on that sense of celebrity. Yeah. You're going to exploit that. Mm-hmm to keep feeding your own sense of self-worth. By the way, all of this is Stella Adler's work. Mm. This is her whole thing was breaking down the human condition and understanding the psychology of people so that you can take them on and understand how they work as an actor. Oh, wow. This is all her work. 
It's amazing. Yeah. How you go, you know, you apply it to life. That's what, but acting is applied to life. And that was the difference between Stella and Strasberg. Mm. Stella's all true. In life, things affect you. Yeah. Someone says something to you, they step on your foot, right? Or you wear a piece of clothing that forces you to sit a certain way. Right. We are affected and affected from the outside in, mm. not from the inside out. We're affected by our surroundings. Mm. We're affected by our religion, our family, our culture, our neighborhood, yeah. the school we went to, the clothes we can afford to wear, the car we drive, all of this stuff. The smells we're smelling. Absolutely. That all the, that, that, that would be generational or, um, or it could be international. You grew up in a household with mm. a, with a, you know, a mother who came from another country. You're smelling smells in your house right. that your friends are not smelling right. in their house. Yeah. So all of that stuff feeds you from the outside. Yeah. When you're wearing a piece of jewelry that your grandfather gave you and he passed away and you see that jewelry on your hand, it has an, an effect on your very mood at that exact moment you look at it. Yeah. That's why you should never wear any of your own stuff on stage. Never. Find stuff that the character would have. But if you wear your own stuff, you're going to have your own personal experience uh -huh. while you're working. I don't wear my own socks, my own underwear, nothing. If it belongs to me, it's not the character, so I don't wear it. I like that. Yeah. I like well, that. You can't. It's not his. So mm, He you, wouldn't wear that. Yeah, it, it makes Even if you have something he would wear, uh -huh. you have experiences attached to that item. Okay. So when right. you see that item, yeah. it's going to trigger your experiences, not his. I can see Go that. to a thrift shop, buy something, and make it his. Now, yeah. whatever you want to put on that item, you can put on it because it's owned by him. Mm, yeah. You can't put these fake things on something that's still owned by you because when you're on stage and you look at that watch that your grandfather gave you for your bar mitzvah or your yeah. or whatever it was, it's still your grandfather's watch that he gave you. Mm. No matter what, it's always going to read that way. No matter what. Makes sense. Yeah. So we are affected from the outside in uh, every day. I love that. That's how. And Strasbourg was like, no, it's from the inside out. Mm. Well, I don't believe that. Mm. You know? Yeah. That's that human condition thing. When you look at somebody, you could just look at somebody. You could look at someone standing in line at the grocery store in front of you, head to toe. You could just look at them. And you can tell by the, the cleanliness of the clothes or yeah. how nice the clothes are or the fact that like they, they're trying to tuck the shirt in and wear nice shoes to maybe look a little nicer, but they don't have the money to. And you can tell the insecurity in the person's face because they don't look as nice. Like you can read all of this in mm -hmm. a person if you take one second. Yeah. One second and take somebody else in. Yeah, yeah. And make them more important their stuff will all of a sudden become part of you and you will become compassionate and you will, you just have this read on a person that all of a sudden you go, I get that. Like, I get that, you know? And that might be the guy when they get up there and they are pulling their, their money out to pay for an $8 sandwich yeah. that they clearly can't afford. And they got, you go, you know what? Today's the day I'm paying it forward. And you go, I'm buying your sandwich for you. And the guy's like, what? And you go, look, don't ask questions. Someone did it for me. I'm doing it for you. Today's your lucky day. Like, just thank the universe. And you do that. And I do that for people all the time. Yeah. Yesterday I was walking, yesterday I was walking into Gelson's Market. I pulled in. I had my head in the clouds, not paying attention. There's a guy with a sign. Couldn't see the sign, barely saw the guy, but I knew there was a guy with a sign. 
So I parked, I went in, I got my stuff, I went to the hot counter, and uh, I got two chicken tenders from the hot counter. I got buck fifty each, whatever, so three bucks, right? I walked outside before I even went to my car, and I went up to the guy. And I said, hey, man, I just caught you out of the corner of my eye when I walked in, and at that point I saw his sign. U.S. Marine veteran, a battalion this, army that, fought in Desert Storm, fought in this. And the guy's got all the right stuff on the sign, you know, whatever. Yeah. I didn't know what it said. I just knew that there was a hungry guy that needed something to eat, Yeah. right? And all that takes is a second to just look. I just saw the sign. The sign was all I needed to know. That guy's hungry. Yeah. That's it. Pay attention. Pay attention. Pay attention to your life, to the world around you. Yeah. You become a force in the world then. Yeah. You know, that's your obligation. So I gave the guy the chicken, you know, and I, I said to him, look, I, I, I don't know why or what, but I, I have to acknowledge you because from one American to another, like, thank you. Yeah. Like for your service. And it's not right that you are not being taken care of for that service. And I'm glad to be able to feed you some food right now. And the guy went, man, I can't thank you enough. Like two chicken tenders. Yeah. But all you got to do is look at somebody. Yeah. And if you don't feel, if there's no compassion in you, if you're not affected by another person, and even if you look at them and they're draped in diamonds, you know, that doesn't mean they're happy. That right. Pay attention yeah, yeah. to the people in the world around you. You have a moral obligation, I think. This is my hippie coming out. No, no, dude, I love it. It's my deadhead, you know. It, the minute you're born, you <laughs> have a moral obligation. It's an agreement you make with the universe to live at service. You have to be at service to people, your friends, strangers, the universe. You have to help things along. You can't just take. You got to be at service to. When someone says, I need a hand, you go, okay, I don't know you, but here, let me help you change your tire. Yeah. You're being at service to. Yeah, yeah. And that's when other things show up. Yeah. You know, because there is this sort of electrical kind of force thing that makes it all work, I think. I think. And I, stuff just comes around that way. You know, when you show up, I think it's your angels too, if you believe in angels, you know, and I think like your angels are always with you and they're there. And I think that that, when you acknowledge that and you act out of that greatness, you know, then I think great things show up because you clear space for them to come in, you know? Like, That's cool, yeah. No, I'm a, a firm believer in that too, you know, uh, you know, if you don't ask for it, then how's the universe going to give it to you? Absolutely. You know what I mean? Paul Rodriguez. Oh, really? Paul Rodriguez said to me at the improv one night, we was like, I'm like the young guy sitting with like him and Overton and a bunch of people and talking about the business. And Paul Rodriguez looks at me and goes, let me tell you something. In this business, if you don't ask, you don't get. Wow. It's not that people don't want to give, but they're not thinking about you. Mm. They're thinking about themselves. Ah. So you got to ask. I like that. Same thing with the universe. Yeah. Expect a miracle. Yeah. Ask for it. Right. Show up and be present yeah. in the world. Right, right. Yeah. You know, don't just take. Right. Don't just take, dude. I know. Dude, that, that, that's like, you know, I don't know. Like, I, I, I've seen that so much uh, in this business. And I, and I remember you always offering me, like, road gigs or some other gigs. And, you know, because me as a booker, right, constantly giving 
giving out spots to, to, to people. Right. Give it back. Give at least, it back. At least, you know, offer it, you know, and it just blows my mind. That I offered you a gig once and you literally said, I can't do it. Like, you couldn't do the date. Dude, you offered me many spots, like, all the time, dude. Like, but uh, you got to give it back. But, but here's, you know, just the fact that you thought about, you know, offering me a spot, it just meant a lot to me because, you know, it's like, you know, you're not just uh uh you, you 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 don't just take you give it's like and I and I always feel that too you know like if somebody offers me a gig dude like if you did anything for me um uh, I I'd want to just give you something you know what I mean ah yes I do yeah it's a th- it's a way to yeah. say thank you someone that, does you a favor yeah. you buy them a bottle of wine you go here thank you I I know that but you say that like like it's common knowledge and like for guys like us I believe it is common knowledge but. You know, for a lot of people, this yeah, generation and the one before it, they kind of lost that old fashioned sense of um, decency and manners and, you know, doing the right thing. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. Don't, don't, acknowledging somebody is so easy to do. It takes very little time to say thank you to somebody. Yeah. But this generation, because they were coddled by their parents and this thing that they grew up with at brand new cars at 16 and no hitting the kids yeah and timeouts and everybody gets a trophy and there's this expectation yeah that well i say yes so you're gonna do it right and i think that's why people take other people for granted now you know like went out of my way and busted my ass for you. You didn't right. even have the fucking decency to say thanks. Yeah. Like, you expected me to do that. You know right. what I mean? Yeah. And I'm offended by that. Yeah. My time has value. I know. I know. Yeah. You know. We're on the same page We could that. talk about this yeah, one for yeah. a billion years. I know, we could. Um, I, I, I just want to touch, um, uh, we're wrapping it up here, but, um, you know, how... You know this whole thi- COVID thing has uh, affected you, and uh, I mean, you're 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 you know you're a people person, and uh, you know it. It's sad that you know, like, you know, I haven't seen you in a long time, and it was great to see you really, in person. True. But like the fact that you're like, oh, so what are we doing? You know, like, are we hugging? Are we handshake? You know, like it's it's sad, but you know, it's the world we're living in right now. I right? also wanted to respect your space. Yeah, because, you know. No, but, but yeah, it's it's very sad. And I, you're right. I'm a guy. You know, there's people like I just, you know, people out there like oh, I fucking hate people. Like, yeah, you know, like, right. Yeah, I am. I fucking love people. Yeah, that's me. I'm the guy who loves people. Yeah, I do. And I, I believe people are inherently good. Yeah, and I believe that everybody deserves a smile. Yeah, and I really, you know, I, I, I think that because we're all. Lenny Bruce said we're all the same asshole. Hmm. And there's so much truth to that because really what it means is we're all just trying to do the same thing. Wake up in the morning, have a meal, have a roof, get through the day, pay your bills, have some love in your life. Like we're all the same asshole. Yeah. We're all doing the same thing. Right. You know what I mean? Yeah. So include everybody in that then. You know, yeah. I'm. That's why I genuinely love people because if I'm having a great day and you're having a shitty day, your shitty day is going to affect not just my good day but other people that you don't even know. Good day. So why not spread a little light on you? It's true. I got some to give. Yeah. You know. Yeah. Plenty. 
Totally. You know, so yeah. here, have a little bit, you know, and then sometimes people look at you and they'll go, shut the fuck up, dude. Like, I don't need to hear from you. Or they'll go, you know what? Thanks. Yeah. I really needed that right now. Yeah. You know, but doing your job or doing what for you, then you've done what you can do. Yeah. You showed up. You're right. You know, and even if the guy didn't appreciate it then, they will later. Yeah. Oh, I wish I could call that guy and tell him thank you. You know what I mean? Yeah. So, I mean, uh, how, what do you think, do you think that uh, staying uh, shut down all this time is the right thing to do? Yes. Uh, yeah. I believe the science. Mm-hmm. I'm a guy who, you know, science is, you know, I mean. Yeah. So, yeah, I, I think that for 600 years, they've been fighting pandemics and 600 years ago, they figured out social distancing. Mm-hmm. 400, they figured out masks. This is not new mm-hmm. information. This is stuff that they figured out how to make it work, Mm. you know? Yeah. And in 1918, when the um, Spanish flu pandemic broke out, Mm -hmm. it took two years to curtail that. I mean, that was 1918. Woodrow Wilson, the president of the United States, went to Versailles to sign the Treaty of Versailles in 1920 and came down with Spanish flu in France. Mm. He was sick. Yeah, a lot of people don't know that. He caught Spanish flu during the signing of the Treaty of Versailles. Wow. Yeah. And it it took two years. But then people were much more willing. Mm -hmm. Much more. You look at pictures of New York City during the pandemic, every human being. China, every human being. Mexico, every human. People put masks on. Oh, this is what we have to do. Yeah. But once again, we go back to this entitled fucking generation. Yeah. Well, my rights. Your rights, really? The laws are the laws. When you get in your car, do you put a seatbelt on? Yeah. Or do you say, I have the right to go <laughs> through the windshield? Yeah. No. Yeah. And the reason why is because, and a lot of people don't take this into account, car accidents cost municipalities money. Deaths on the road cost municipalities money. Yeah. So they put these measures in place not only to protect you so that your life has value and you can continue living, but because to not do that is fiscally irresponsible when you're trying to run a municipality. Yeah. You can't just let people do what the fuck they want. Right. So there's a law that says if you want to drive a car, you have to wear a seatbelt. Yeah. Uh, nobody says, fuck you, I'm not wearing my seatbelt. Right. I mean, some people don't put them on and they mm-hmm. get an accident, go through the windshield. Guess right. what? Next time they put the seatbelt on. Exactly. But with the mask, sometimes, they, or with the seatbelt, sometimes there is no next time. Right. But that's the law. Mm-hmm. Got to wear the mask. You don't have the right to say it's infringing on your rights. Yeah. No, it's not. Because your uncovered face is not a protected class. Mm-hmm. Okay? No. You can go practice religion. You don't need to go to the church to pray to God. Yeah. In fact, churches are holding s- services outside, socially mm-hmm. distanced. Yeah. And anyone will tell you. The only reason they have churches and synagogues and mosques is so that you can organize and pray together mm-hmm. and it's getting done. You know what I mean? Some yeah. people aren't going to pray to God at home on Sundays. Yeah. So they go up and they go to church and they, you know what I mean? Oh, if yeah. I go here, then the guy will make me do it. Yeah. And that's, you can pray anywhere you want. Yeah. You don't need a cross in front of you and holy water in the hallway to make your expression to your God or your religion count. So no one's infringing on your ability to do that. You want to buy a gun? Gun shops are open. Go yeah. buy a gun. Nobody's saying you can't buy a gun. Right. 
Okay. You want to go fuck your 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 gay lover? Go fuck mm-hmm. your gay lover. Mm-hmm. Nobody's saying it. No one's taking your rights away mm-hmm. by right. putting a safety law yeah. in place. Yeah. The argument holds no water. Yeah. So whenever someone wants to say that to me, literally, I want to punch them in the face. Yeah. Yeah. I do. Because no. it's an idiotic position to take. Totally. I believe in the science. Yeah. Wear your fucking masks. Stay home if you don't have to go out right now. You know? I want to be in a comedy club. I want to be in a sushi bar. Yeah. I want to be at a concert. I, I missed Dead and Company this summer. Uh, you know? Like, I want to yeah. be dancing in the dirt barefoot, surrounded by sweaty hippies, smoking <laughs> weed, smelling like patchouli oil. I want that. Yeah. But I'm not getting it this yeah. year. And I'm smart enough to know yeah. that if I play my cards right, I can maybe get it next year. Yeah. Yeah, you know, but I'm not gonna kick and scream like a petulant child right. that you're taking away my rights. Yeah, no, the stop sign says stop, motherfucker. You don't have the right to run that. You know why? Because the law says so, and we live in a country of laws. Right, that's what civilized society is made of. Right, right. I'm a civilized person. I listen to the laws. That's why when people run stop signs, I get mad because you could kill me. Yeah, right. You don't want to wear a mask? You can kill me. Right. No, totally. So that's where I sit with this thing, you know? <clears throat> and I think most people feel this way. Yeah, sure. I really do, you know? So what have you done uh, during uh, quarantine that, uh, <laughs> you know, like... I mean, how's it how's it changed your 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 everyday habits? Ah, well, I perfected my popcorn game. <laughs> nice. Oh, I make great popcorn now. <laughs> um, I, you know, I smoking more weed, drinking more wine. Yeah. Um, you know, just yeah. I I don't like clothes. Uh-huh. <coughs> I live in New York Giants drawstring pants. Oh, really? Oh, I almost wore them here. I swear to God, I wasn't <laughs> even going to put on jeans. Oh, well, thank you for not. Yeah, I, um, <laughs> I, I, I actually bought two more pairs off eBay since <laughs> pandemic just so I can have multiple pairs now. Well, they are comfortable. Oh, right? my God. Yeah. All I want to do is wear these 100% yeah. cotton drawstrings yeah. all day. I don't want to do anything else. <laughs> you kidding me? Dude, it, it, those, I mean, I'm surprised you've lost all this weight because normally, like, those pants, since they have the elastic band, you know, yeah. you can eat a lot and you not know it, you know? Oh, yeah, yeah. I started juicing. I was bored. I, I have a juicer. I stopped using it about six months or seven months ago. So when this all started again, I wasn't, see, people were ordering food in, delivery, not me. I didn't get my first delivery until about four weeks ago. You know what it was? What? A Domino's pizza. You know what happened when it got to my house? What? I put it in the oven at 450 for five minutes. Oh, to kill the To kill COVID? whatever's... Absolutely. <laughs> I saw a thing. The guy went, look, if you want to order in food, and the guy who makes the food has COVID, uh-huh. and he sneezes on your food, uh-huh. five minutes in a 450-degree uh, oven, or if you put your Chinese food in a pan and reheat it, it'll kill whatever on there. The virus itself is very weak. But it wasn't until I saw that. Mm. I was not one of those, support your local restaurants and order out and drive. Uh-uh. Yeah. I was going to the store, buying food, yeah. taking it home, spraying it with 409, yeah. wiping it all down, yeah. and cooking it myself. Nice. Yeah. I mean, did it freak you out when, uh, when you saw the shelves empty like that? Like with no food and stuff? I lived through, I was in L.A. during 1991. 
uh, when Rodney King was shot and the riots and you had to go to the supermarket and stock up because there was a curfew. Yeah. And people were stocking up for a week. Uh-huh. Water, bottled water, 12. Like, so I remember, I remember being Did in the Ralph's, same thing happen? Did thing people happen? overbuy Overbought. something and then, okay. Overbought. And they were stuck with like carts of toilet paper. Here's the best LA story ever. Let's I'm at it. Ralph's at Laurel Canyon in Ventura. Uh-huh. Okay. I was Keep living going. in. I was living in Studio City at the time during the L.A. riots. So I am online with a cart full of toilet paper and bottled water and frozen food and this, that, and the other. And there's a guy in front of me who's got about the same stuff. And in front of him is a guy with three carts. And in front of that guy is two carts. And the guy in front of me, I'm just looking at, and I look at him and I'm like, this guy's got it together kind of like I have it together. He's got like enough stuff. And I look and I, and I lean over and I say to the guy in front of me, Hey man, how come we're the only two people in line here not stocking up like there's going to be a four-month hurricane? And the guy turns around and looks at me and he goes, because we're not panicking idiots. And it was Neil Patrick Harris. <laughs> yeah. It was Doogie. That's so cool. Yeah. Getting his stuff at Ralph's for the uh, riot big enclosure. But I remember seeing that. So when this happened again, I was like, really? It's the same thing? People are just... But why do you need that much... They're not closing the supermarkets. You can come back. But I think think someone... They should have said something to people, you know, and I don't think that would have happened. Or I think, you know, maybe the supermarkets should have said, hey, man, you know, only, you know, one per person. Yeah, what is Costco letting people literally just buy 40 packages? Yeah. Those people, by the way... Still going through their toilet paper. Yeah. Oh, yeah, dude. And and they will for years, you know? Bunch of weirdos. <laughs> yeah, dude. You know? I got lucky. I live alone right now. So right before the lockdown, I had bought the, I guess it's uh, four, eight, twice, it's 16 double rolls of Cottonelle uh-huh. thing, you know, from yeah. CVS. Uh-huh. And then literally, I just bought it right before the pandemic lockdown. I didn't buy toilet paper again until July. Wow. The whole thing was all, you know what I mean? Yeah. It's just me. Yeah, dude. <laughs> Funny. But I've been writing, doing the Zoom shows. Yeah. You know, trying to make the best of a shit situation. Yeah. Not make it any more shitty. <laughs> You I know, know, dude. I don't like to be a victim. Right. Yeah. It's good. Yeah. And, um, like, uh, I, I started calling people and, uh, just, you know, doing FaceTime with them. <laughs> Me too. Yeah. <laughs> and then, like, you call everybody that you normally talk to. So you got to go to the B <laughs> sides right. oh, now. Yeah, totally. And yeah. you're like, well, I haven't talked to this guy in a right. year. Yeah, yeah. Let's call him and see what's up. Dude, why are you <laughs> calling me? <laughs> I know. Yeah, I totally went through that. Hey, remember that jacket I left at your house? <laughs> Hilarious. It's just weird not having uh, interaction, you know, especially with the people that you normally see, you know, regularly. I know. It's, um, you know, like I said, I got to see Hots. I would go to his house and we would work. And he has social anxiety disorder and doesn't leave. So I knew that I was safe in his Mm. house. Everything gets delivered for him. He might go to the supermarket. But, you know, he has tremendous anxiety. So he's all about cleaning them. Mm. 
So I was I felt safe at his house, and then um, I saw Claude once. Uh huh. You know, um, he's a he, is he a new dad? He's not a no. new dad. He's been a dad. But, yeah. But he, they've been in San Diego at his mother in law's, living down there during this whole lockdown. Oh, okay. To help her out, so he came up about a month ago. He's like, "Hey, man, I'm going to be around if you want to like do something." I said, "You safe?" He goes, "Just tested." I go, "All right, if you want to come over, come over." Mm-hmm. But like, I see these things on Facebook, like you know, people having birthday parties, yeah. and you see no masks in the thing. Yeah, the I'm like, "Hello." Yeah, you know. So but I mean, the good thing is I, I hear the cases are going down, right? Is that true? Well, not in L.A., but everywhere else. Oh, really? Yeah, in L.A.? Not in L.A. Mm. We, no, L.A. is still a little bit of a hot spot mm. um, because we have the most petulant, entitled people in the country. Mm. Yeah. Okay. You know. Yeah. Um, but I'd love to see them continue going down. I would love to see comedy clubs open. I would love, look, I'm trying to get on the phone right now and book some work. I've got my agent trying to book me some work. You know, yeah. One, he told me yesterday, he goes, I spoke to one club. He goes, they're doing 25% capacity. Mm-hmm. I go, but that room holds 400. He goes, yeah, so it's 100 people, 25% capacity, and the money was, like, terrible. Mm, yeah. You know? Yeah. I'm like, I can't. I can't. He goes, yeah. I don't blame you. Yeah. You know? They're going to use local headliners for right now, you know? Yeah. Wow. I know. I can't fly across country. Yeah. You know, for garbage money. and I know. Yeah, dude. I know. So I'm just trying to hang on and hold on, and hopefully Hots and I will sell the show. And Yeah, I mean, it, it seems to me like production is uh, picked up now. A little bit. Right. I'm starting to see casting directors doing Zoom auditions. Mm. We're not, there's not 30 people right. here. Yeah, yeah. They, you know, even in the things, they say, look, if you're going to get together... Less than five people. Mm. They say less than five people. Oh, okay. You know? Yeah. So I'm 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 trying to be okay and yeah. we're socially distanced, yeah. right? And I'm not sitting on top of no. you. You know, I mean if we smoke afterwards, I don't know if we're gonna share or how that's <laughs> gonna work, but yeah. Either way, you know, I mean, I, I feel okay with this. Yeah, yeah. You know, and I yeah. trust you. And mm-hmm. I don't think you're going to lie to me right. and say, oh, I've been tested 15 times, right. you know, and I'm positive. Yeah. Come do my podcast. You right. You know what I mean? I, yeah. So, I, you know. But, I mean, don't you think, like, people are going to get, like, some sort of PTSD from this? Like, they're going to be, like, even if, like, things are going back to normal, they're still going to be hesitant. and Yeah. Like, absolutely no question about it. And yeah. for good reason. Yeah. Uh, sure. Yeah. You know, when I was driving over here, I was realizing, like, wow, La Cienega is busy today. Mm-hmm. Like, it's the roads aren't empty anymore. Yeah. Uh-huh. You yeah. know what I mean? Yeah. And I'm like, well, it's kind of nice to see that. Yeah. You know, like, it, I would like to go out and do stuff. Yeah. But I, you know, like, I don't feel, someone texted me the other night, hey, we're going to go get beers. You want to meet up at Barney's? I'm like, no. Mm-hmm. Why are you going? Yeah. yeah. You know? It's tough, dude. It's tough because, I, I mean, we're going to have to, like, event- we're going to have to take baby steps or at least, I mean, steps moving towards, uh, like, a normal Flatline the curve and I'll go out. Okay? Flatline the curve. Yeah. LA's still going up. Oh, okay. Thousand yeah. deaths the other day. Really? Yeah. LA's still going up. I mean, I, I can't, 
you know, flatten the curve and I'll be, and I'll go out, show me the statistics and I'll be, you know, I'll wear my mask, but I'll go out. And when people aren't getting sick anymore and all of a sudden there's been zero cases in Los Angeles reported for two weeks straight. Yeah. I'll feel a little more comfortable. Yeah. You know? Yeah. But you know, I gotta, gotta, gotta make sure I'm taking care of myself here. Yeah. Yeah. I hear you, brother. <laughs> That's all. I just, you know, I don't want to die from COVID. Yeah. And we've lost a couple family members, and I've had some yeah. friends. Yeah, and, uh, you know, I know I'm people. Sorry. Yeah, so it's real. Yeah. It's, it's real. real. It's killing people. Yeah, yeah. My sister, my, my brother-in-law's mother died from it. Mm. I have a friend who's my age. You might have seen it. It was all over the news. He was patient zero at St. Joe's Hospital in Santa Monica. His name's Greg Garfield. Greg was in the hospital for 54 days Jeez. on a ventilator. He's lost half his foot and part of his hand because of being on the ventilator and the treatments, what it does to your blood flow. Wow. Yeah. It's no joke. No joke. No joke. Wow, dude. We did it, buddy. This was fun, man. It was so much fun. Really? Thanks so, so much, much for fun, having dude. me. No, thank you for coming over, man. Thank Anytime. you for thank thank you for uh talking with me and like dude, we could do this for hours. I could sit a dude. Honestly, I could just like it's just, We're friends, so yeah, we could yeah. literally sit here for hours and do and this. So, you know, cuz I, I I you know, that that's why you know, I, I I thought of you because like, you know, there's there's certain people that I could just like talk with for hours and hours and make things like just go by fast and whatnot and uh same thing it was great man it was great great seeing you and thank you for coming over man thank you for having and, me uh, really good to see you too. check out uh richardchastler.com has all his uh dates on there and his uh all his info well there's no dates right now <laughs> <laughs> all the dates that got canceled that's right and my instagram is at richard chastler but my twitter is at funny wino Final one, funny yeah. wino. Oh. Twitter kicked me off for using the word bullet in a punchline. So I had really, wow. Yeah. So yeah. shh, don't tell them. <laughs> but I came back on as funny wino. Oh, nice. Yeah. Well, cool, man. Uh, is there any uh, wine right now uh, you could recommend to anybody? Hey, if uh, I okay, here's my best under fifteen dollar recommendation right now. If at least if you're in LA, uh, at Trader Joe's. They are carrying a wine made by a winery that I am a wine club member of. Really? And they make some of the best Syrah I've ever had. The brand is called Consilience, and they're definitely selling it at Trader Joe's right now. And they did it literally only because Trader Joe's wanted their wine. So they, they took their regular Syrah, and they just rebottled it for Trader Joe's. So the Consilience Syrah at Trader Joe's, I would say, is your best... 15, under 15 big production wine that you can get. Nice. That's cool. There you go. So the name of the uh, podcast is uh, Poop Dollar. The Poop and Dollar. Yeah, yeah. You know what Poop Dollar is? I think that's when you are too drunk, there's no toilet paper, and you got to wipe your ass with money. <laughs> no, no. Actually, it's um, it's a prank that uh, people pull, uh, and they leave a dollar rolled up on the, you know, on the street, right? And, and it's got a turd in it. Oh, <laughs> boo! And then when you pick it up, you're like, "Oh, I found a dollar!" And you put it in your pocket. Yeah, <laughs> well, you look and it's uh, got poop in it. Oh, boo! Yeah, that's yeah. mean. That's like firecrackers 
on the dog do in the paper bag on the ring and run. Did you ever do that? No. Yeah, you put dog do on a paper bag, and or you cover it with a paper bag, and you put firecrackers through the paper bag into the dog do. Yeah. Then you ring the doorbell. No. Light the firecrackers Jesus. and run away. Oh Guy God. opens the door and there's like firecrackers. So he steps on the fire. And put yeah. Ugh. When you're 12. Yeah, yeah. But uh... no more pranks, okay? We're not in college anymore. We're grown ups. So <laughs> <I can't like> <laughs> <it>. <laughs> Hilarious. Yeah. So uh, poop dollar, I, I kind of like that because it's a metaphor too, because it's. Uh, you know, we've all been handed something in life that we thought was good, and then it turns out it's got poop in it. It's a poop dollar. Yeah. I like the term. So uh, have you ever, uh, what was your poop dollar moment where you thought you got a good thing and it turned out to be shit? Um, God, there's been a lot of those. <laughs> uh, let's see. Okay, here's a great one. I spent $3,000 on an Audi car when I was 18 or 19 years old. The money was from a lawsuit settlement from when I was a kid and I was hit by a truck on my bike. Uh My dad told me not to buy this car. My uncle told me not to buy this car. My friend's uncle had like a mechanic shop in his backyard and he had the car for sale. He wanted three grand for this Audi. Uh Uh-huh. I fucking bought that Audi. Day two, it wouldn't start. Oh. And it was such a beautiful car. Was it? Oh, yeah. Dude, and I wound up selling it back to the guy for $1,200. Oh. That's a pretty big poop dollar. Yeah. <laughs> I thought Jesus. I got the best car, three grand. I was making my own purchase. My first car I bought on my own. Oh, that's all Adam. Yeah, that was terrible. Dude, like, that sucks, man. That <laughs> sucked. How how long after did you sell it back to him? I can't believe he bought it too. Maybe six. I want to say six, seven months. Uh, maybe. Did it maybe. get you any action, dude? <laughs> action. I would get in the car and I'd turn it on and it wouldn't start. <laughs> and then I'd have to tow it back to his house. And he go, I don't know. I feel it starts here. You get yeah. in and it start right. Like yeah, yeah. telling you. Uh, it was a big fat poop doll. Oh damn! Big fat poop doll. That's a good one, dude. That's a good one. <laughs> and on that note, oh hell no! Thanks, Richard. We'll see you soon, buddy. Thanks, That's Eric. Been good poop to dollar. see you, pal. Good to see you, brother.